Back to the Snowman Podcast this is your host Gorda Van, and today joining me is Hal Armstrong. You can check out Hal Armstrong's uh, writings and uh, photos uh, from the past on his uh, Time Machines Facebook page. Check that out. He's got some great technical articles, some photos from past races. Um, it's great stuff. Uh, we decided to try something different uh, today uh, on our episode 27. If you haven't checked out uh, the uh, past episodes, we've got some great ones on there. But uh, we said to try something different, and we get. We thought we'd get two legends on here talking about uh, uh, their past racing careers, and uh, they uh, both these racers, uh, uh, Jim Derman and Franz Rosenquist, their their careers kind of paralleled each other. They started approximately the same time. They uh, began. They were top privateers, uh, and then they got the tap on the shoulder uh, from the uh, major fa- major factories. Uh, Jim with uh, Articat and uh, Franz with uh, with Yamaha in. Uh, uh, Franz's story, uh, he'll tell you that uh, he, he didn't quite get the tap. He, he got a, a snail letter uh, asking if he wanted to uh, join the, the Yamaha factory team. And, uh, you know, he obviously did that. So some great stories. Um, so if, um, if you're new to the uh, Snowling Podcast, you can uh, check us uh, out on the uh, Snowling Podcast Facebook page. All the past episodes are on there. And uh, among some other photos and stuff that, uh, that I post, uh, we are uh, hosted on iTunes. So you can check out Snowmobiling Podcast on iTunes, and you can download download all these episodes uh, to your uh, smart device, uh, your computer. Uh, uh, you can listen to them uh, streamed-wise, or you can download them to your device and uh, play them over your uh, car, truck, boat, um, you know, cottage radio, or in Franz's case, uh, his, uh, his tractor while plowing the fields. So you, um, a couple of uh, great options on there for you uh, to uh, listen to uh, these episodes. And this is a long one today, so uh, two and a half hours, uh, uh, you know, we get two of these legends uh, together. Uh, of, of course, they're going to talk uh, quite a bit uh, and banter amongst each other. Uh, uh, you know, these two, uh, they, they're, they're asking, uh, you know, you know th- 35, 40 years later, they're, they're asking about each other's sleds, uh, you know, what, what each other had. So some great stories on here, some great legends, great talking to these guys. And uh, they did a lot of talking. So uh, if you need to contact me, you can do so at snowmobilingpodcast at gmail.com. And really hope you enjoy this. Jim Dimmerman and Franz Rosenquist. Okay, welcome back to the Snowmobiling Podcast. This is your host, Gordon Van. Today's episode, we got uh, a, a trio of, uh, of uh, special guests. Uh, I'm hosting with me today is with uh, Hal Armstrong from Time Machines. We've seen his articles in uh, many magazines. And our two special guests, racers, probably heard of them, Jim Dimmerman and Franz Rosenquist. Uh, both these gentlemen, uh, uh, you know, their, their careers paralleled each other in the, in the Snow Pro Factory era. They were both factory riders. And uh, great stories, both of them, the development of the sleds, uh, their, their careers, and uh, the, uh, the, the tremendous results that they had. So how you doing, guys? Uh, doing good. Okay. Uh, doing good, George. Jim Dimmerman, where are you located now? I live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. I'm actually in my hometown, uh, born and raised here. Yep. Franz Rosenquist. I'm in Atwater, Minnesota, about 100 miles uh, straight west of the Twin Cities. Perfect. And uh, hosting with me today is uh, Hal Armstrong. How are you doing, Hal? I'm doing great. Looking forward to the interview. Yeah, it's great. These these two guys, I've been looking forward to get in touch with these guys. Uh, you know, get some get some great stories. Uh, I I I followed these guys and their you know their racing careers uh, when my brother was racing, and uh, you know, obviously you, you you look at the big guys uh, that are that are also racing. So, okay, so let's let's get started here. Um, 
And uh, Jim, when when did you start racing? Actually, my first race was in 1970. I came out of high school. I graduated in 72, but I was in the, you know, a hockey player, and then I had an opportunity to go work at a at a then Arctic Ad dealership, and and uh, the the, the sport of snowmobile racing it was really evolving lots and lots of racetracks all around the U.S. and Canada. There was a few different divisions, ASA and USSA, and uh, we you could pick and choose from billboards on weekends uh, where you wanted to go, whether you wanted to run against some pretty stiff competition, uh, like is in the later years, or your local races. Some of them were literally in cornfields and and most of it was snow-based at that time. The ice racing was just starting in, in, the, in the middle of the late 70s. But, but that's how I started. I worked at a dealership and, and had an opportunity, uh, met some guys along the way that, that were uh, actually sponsoring it. They wanted to own the machines, and I became a driver along with my brother, who was a junior at the time. And that's kind of how it started. I was a mechanic and, and uh, working on snowmobiles and motorcycles during the summertime. And, and I was really, uh, you know, taken in with snowmobiles. That was uh, um, just a, a sport that, that seemed like it had endless, uh, endless dreams, you know, small engines, bigger engines, bigger, bigger engines, faster. And, and uh, sure enough, it, it turned out to be a career and, and, uh, and, a, and a pretty good one for me now, and for France, for that matter. What were, you, what were you riding back then? When you first started? Well, I started on a Polaris in 1970. That my the, the first dealership I worked for was a Polaris dealer, and uh, he brought me to a couple of the, the big USSA races where the entire factory Polaris team was there: Eastman, Burnett, Douglas, Umdahl, uh, Stanier, Hansrud, and those are all names, uh, iconic names of the beginning. Uh, we're not even about the beginning of Polaris, but the beginning of the successes of it. And I watched all of that. The evolution of the TX was just starting. The uh, 295, 340, 440, 650, 800, uh, just tremendous uh, uh, power and and high-rev aluminum clutches and Japanese engines, Mukuni carburetors. So the, the, the initial sled that had the motor sitting up in front of you was in the, in, on the move. It was, it was changing into a a front-mounted, low-engine, and, and it was destined to be a performance machine. When you, when you first seen these guys uh, race, uh, did, uh, the, the factory races, did you, did you also aspire to, to do something like that, or did you think it was, oh, this is just going to be a hobby and we'll have some fun? And Did you, did you aspire to be you know, uh, a big-name a big, big rider, big factory rider? <laughs> no. Gordy, I, you know, I don't think that Adam France, France probably didn't either. You know, at that time we were watching guys that were nearly 20 years older than us, and 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 they were just so far out of reach because the equipment that they had was yeah. was so special. I I watched Eastman and and Burnett and and then both of them win their world championships, standing as a young guy with a with a stock snowmobile at Eagle River and looking what we called the boards at that time, just hanging over there, you know, fingertips hanging and just going unbelievable. So, no, I never saw myself on there. And, and when I got a chance to, at the 50th anniversary um, to be with uh, Burnett and Eastman, and we became friends over, you know, later years, but uh, 
I, I quoted myself as never as watching them win their championships and never dreaming that someday I'd hold that flag too. So, uh, yeah. how about you, friends? Past the dream. How about you, friends? When did you begin? Well, I started in <clears throat> 1968 on a borrowed snowmobile. We actually rode snowmobiles to these, <clears throat> like Jim mentioned, uh, uh, out outback field races, yeah. and I borrowed a one of the guy's sleds. I had a 14-horse skidoo, and he had a 370, 370 opposing skidoo at that time. It was a 68, and I borrowed his, and um, he signed for me to go out there and race, and uh, I got kind of got hooked on it after that, and uh, started fooling around with the 69 and 70 blizzards a little bit there, and, and I actually had to buy my own sleds. I'd work in the summertime and save up enough money to buy my sleds at that time, and then uh, 73 came around, and Skidoo came with that 400 and 340 free air, and I had bought a 400 and took it to all the little local races, you know, and Kind of got got hooked on it in '73, and then '74. I, I still ran a skidoo in '74, also, and they weren't near as competitive in '74 as they were in '73, and didn't do very well in '74. Well, then '75 come around, and I bought a new 440 Thunderjet, and then started running the ASA races, and the one machine there, I would run it in super stock and then throw a set of pipes on it and run it in super mod and then jump it into the 650 super mod, you know, and had a lot of success, uh, won a lot of points championships in the ASA circuit that year, and that was in 75. Then uh, 76 came along, and um, this Excelsior boat and motor out of Excelsior, Minnesota had Two guys racing for them, and their names were uh, John Gearlock and I think Gary Stensby, and they were running the 75 Mercury's, and I would run against them guys almost every single weekend, and would could run right with them, you know, most every weekend. And then Excelsior Boat and Motor said, "Hey, why don't you come drive for us?" Because they were going to retire. Well, that was the year that the uh, little mini snow twister came out, mm -hmm. and Believe it or not, I bought the 440, and my mechanic, he bought the 250, and we got them at a, at a discount, of course, but neither one of us had enough money for the 340, so I, I told the dealer there at Excelsior, I said, hey, we picked the sled up on a Thursday. I said, you hold my check until Monday. I'm going to take them all to Ironwood, and I said, I'm going to win enough money in Ironwood to pay for the, to make that check good. <laughs> and we went to Ironwood that year with them three snow twisters, and in the 250 super stock class, there was 150 entries, yeah. 150 250s. I mean, that just sounds unbelievable. But fortunately, I, I won that class in the 250 class. And then the 340 class came around, and I crashed in the 340 class. And then the 440 class came around, and I won the 440 class. Or I didn't win it. I got second in the 440 super stock class. And I... Came home that weekend with like thirty five hundred dollars. Yeah, you know, and, and that was back in seventy six when thirty thirty five hundred dollars was a lot of money. And I made the check good, and uh, well, then, and I, I'll never forget when we were at Ironwood that year in December, some people came up to me and they said, 
this is Mercury Marines last year. And I kind of laughed at them because there was just, I mean, like literally hundreds and hundreds of these Mercury snow twisters up at Ironwood in December. And lo and behold, it was Mercury's last year. Well, then 77 came along, but Excelsior Boat and Motor, they had both Mercury and Yamaha at that time. And there was a gentleman by the name of Kurt Degner from Yamaha, and he wanted to get me on a Yamaha so bad. Well, they had a program that year where we, we finally got our sled for nothing. Yeah. And that would have been a 77 SRX. And we got a parts allowance from from Yamaha at that time. And we then we started racing all of the USSA races that year. And, and in, I believe it was 77, I was driver of the year with the top points in 77. Well, at that time, Trickle was running. Yamahas and so is Donahue but I had a higher percentage and points wise for the year well then Yamaha decided to go factory racing in 78 and they wanted Chubitsky because he had won the world championships in 76 I believe on a Yamaha so they hired Chubitsky and then they hired me and then uh, they brought Mario Itu over from Japan and they built a new facility in Coon Rapids, Minnesota. That was our race shop. Um, and we raced out of there. And, and, you know, one of your questions was, did we ever, did I ever think that this would, never, never in my wildest dreams when I was, a, a, you know, I mean, even when we were running in 72 and 73, having a lot of success in the backyard races, I never dreamed it would get to where it got to. And like Jim said, he didn't either. I mean, it was just, you know, and probably one of the neatest things about getting into the factory racing was getting to know all of the old legends. And when I say old legends, like Charlie Lofton and Dave Thompson and Larry Coltham and Bob Eastman and, and Jim Burnett and, and Leroy Lindblad and that whole bunch. Yeah. I mean, they were just the greatest people you could ever meet. Okay. And getting to know them was probably one of the biggest things in, in my career. Yeah. Okay, Jim. Let's, let's, okay, Jim. Jim, let's catch up to uh, to Franz here. Uh, um, your, your your early years up at. I've always was chasing him. I yeah, I was waiting for you to to uh, to, to catch Randy that. Rosenquist, Randy was a one tough hombre. You never had to. Uh, if he was in your heat, you had your work cut out for you. I, I had a lot of respect for Franny over all the years that. Uh, he was a good driver, strong driver. I'm not saying we wouldn't lean each other, but, but uh, no, friends and I have remained friends through it all, and, and I don't think we've ever had an issue. With, no, I was just going to say that, Jim. You and I never, ever, that I can remember, I mean, we may be rubbins racing, but nobody ever took anybody out. Nobody ever cut anybody off. I mean, it was good, fast, clean running. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you picked a couple of guys that, that – I, I wouldn't say that for a couple of the other ones that we might talk about, but no, I, but, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, it worked out pretty good that way. And, and uh, you know, I, I think we, you know, we kind of accelerated through the super stock and the, that those last years of of uh, I or excuse me of uh, leaf spring sleds and and uh, you know that the development that came on and that Mercury trying to started that wheel in motion. I'm not I don't want to take anything away from snow jets and, and all of that and the Jim Edema or Adama, I don't know how you guys say it, but um, you know, he, he was a forefront to a bunch of things that were happening then 
both in traction and uh, and eventually into liquid cooled. I, I think he had some of the early uh, encased cylinders and and ran uh, a cooling system around his those big free air engines. Uh, uh, he was a very smart man that that uh, understood what he wanted, but he had to engineer it himself. And so I think Franz and I were kind of watching all of this stuff happening as well as the first IFSs, but um, so you know those 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 legends that we talk about now, they were tremendously smart people. The if you take that Polaris collection, for instance, the 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 RXL version of it, which started in its PX years, but uh, flying spider that could be the cover, the bell could be taken right off of it, and the the clutch weights were were in a gram. Uh, in a gram uh, increment uh, but same type profile and spring combinations they made a truly tunable um, clutch that once you learned how each one of these pieces were you could actually capture this engine and and this was all done before we got there and uh, you had to learn how to work with it all and every engine was different but that first liquid cooling the first uh, uh, clutch evolution so um in any case, you know that those are those are late '70s with those hot rod uh, super stockers and Skidoo made their Blizzard series of it all. That was uh, they were they were the the writing was on the wall that uh, and 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 people were buying them like Franny said to come and have a hundred and some machines in in one class. You know, uh, oh my God, there it would take all day long, uh, you know, heat after heat after heat after heat to work yourself down into it. I, I swear, I think there was sometimes where there were several hundred in a class, but um, you know, it, it was it was racing at at its finest in those late seventies and, and early eighties. There there were people all over the place and lots of places to go. But in any case, so that, so as that sled started to evolve and and uh, went from the from the leafers to the IFSs, if we if we're going to go in, into that next, the that was a that was if that was all brand new to them too. The Polaris had a little bit of the jump because they they kind of took that Gordy Rudolph thing and and ran with it and built some prototypes and took them up to Canada to test and and they weren't any faster. And I think that most of the stories will come back that the speed of the sled and it was the same motor and in probably in some ways it was heavier because of the addition of the suspension. But the the beauty was is the corner speed. It didn't you know once they learned a little bit about that, you could go through the turn you know either wide open or nearly wide open, and it wasn't long before you started to put some you know significant distance between uh, a leafer and that, and and Eastman recognized that, and and uh, you know the Midnight Blue Express story uh, is is pretty uh, pretty well explained over the years. So. So here we come into this thing, and, and me too. Uh, I just got done with my leafers and, and got the nod to come up to Arctic and, and see this machine for the first time. Uh, I'm not sure what Fran's uh, deal was. Uh, my factory, the Arctic factory, was was the same place that the sleds were produced, and, and we housed right out of there. Franny was working out of the, the facility in uh, actually uh, in Blaine or Coon Rapids area there. So a little bit different as far as the where the, I don't even know where the Yamaha stones were actually built, but but nonetheless uh, I I had a, I had my company was was all right across the uh, the parking lot from from where our race shop was, 
But uh, if I told an interesting story of the first time, I mean, I, I came up there and, and I told Hal this, the, the prototype for Arctic was built late in 77 season because they were after, you know, getting their, their whooping from Polaris. So they were working on their own early version of IFS. But they took one of their head men uh, in engineering, in advanced engineering, his name was Roger Gage, and they put the project on to him gave them some parameters of what they wanted to see, and, and literally six months later, Roger built the what we call the 78 mailbox sled. Uh, the, the mailbox side of it is because the, the radiator is sat off to the side on one side, kind of like a box, I guess. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the part that was significant about it was obviously the front end. Yeah. Hal? Um, go ahead. Hal, you got some questions? Yeah, so I, I well, let's so that kind of explains. I, I just wanted to, to just step back a second with uh, Jim, and then I'll jump to to France. Um, so when did you get the call from Arctic to uh, to move up to the factory team, uh, Jim? Did they did they approach you, uh, the the race director, in uh, in the spring of '77 or during the winter of '77? And, and France, the same thing with you. How did you get uh, how did you get the call from uh, from the factory team and uh, and what was going through your head at the time? I mean, you guys were just young guys then, like early twenties, right? So, Jim, you go first. Uh, let's start off with France. How did, how did you get the call from Yamaha? Well, all of a sudden, I got a I got a letter in the mail and uh, asked me if I'd be interested, and I had to make a phone call, and I was pretty excited about that, and I had to go down to uh, Minneapolis and one of the forget which motel it was now, and meet with uh, with some of the, well, actually, I think two or three of the Japanese from Japan were over here, and then I believe Gordy Metz was there, and um, maybe one or two Americans uh, that were working out of Yamaha, out of California, mm-hmm. but the, the head, head honchos were right from Japan, and they couldn't speak English very well, so they had a translator there. Was and Eddie was, there in Shibitsky at the same time, friend? No, he was not. No. no, just you, just me. And they told us that they were building, you know, an IFS sled because obviously I had seen what Polaris had did the year before. And like I said, this was in September, and uh, we signed our contract that day. And I never got to see the sled until, <coughs> excuse me, we flew to. Uh, Alaska, and probably it was must have been around Thanksgiving time. We went up to Alaska there, and then they had the new the new IFS sled there, and then they actually had Shabitsky's old WC sled from '76 that we were kind of testing it against against these new uh, new IFS sleds. So, what year was that, friends? Was that '77? That would have been '70. It would have been. Fall of '77. Yeah. Okay. So probably you're November of '77 because it was '78 sleds. Yeah. Well, really late, just before. I mean, literally, you had a month before the first race. Yeah, not even. I think we went to, from then. When we got back from Alaska. We went to, I believe, Kinross, Michigan, was our first one. Now, were you testing mules or or, or prototypes uh, in '77 of the IFS sled? No, no, we weren't. Really? I wasn't. Yeah. Uh, Trickle, I think, made his own IFS sled, if I remember right. Trickle and Donahue raced at that time together, and, and Yamaha was 
sponsoring them kind of backdoor. Yeah, and Edo had a kind of a cobbled together IFS on a 76 SR or 77 SRX. Also, I think the yep, I, I believe I, yes, that that is correct. That Ito had one out there too. But so by the time you got up to Alaska, Yamaha probably had all 100 or 200 of these SSRs already built. I whatever whatever the stock SSRs numbers were, I I want to say they had built um, as far as our snow pro sleds. I think there was probably about probably eight of them. You know, and not counting what Yetu had, but uh, Shabitsky had four of them, and I had four of them. Okay. And what was really heartbreaking about that whole deal was, all of a sudden in uh, in March, they said, "Well, we're done racing." <laughs> they said, "Bring your sleds out to the middle of the floor at, at our R and D center." I said, "Well, why? Just bring them out to the middle," and we brought them out to the middle, and they literally drove over the top of them with a forklift. I watched it. <laughs> and wow. then they, they videotaped them driving over them and smashing them, and then they called a salvage company from Minneapolis to come out and pick up the pieces. And what they did with the video was they sent that to the uh, Justice Department, U.S. Justice Department, because these were duty-free sleds, supposedly, that came from Yamaha or from Japan. And they had to film them being destroyed, so they didn't have to pay a tax on them. Wow. <laughs> you know, and I mean, you talk about, I mean, here's here's my baby that I worked on all year, <laughs> and just watch it get destroyed. Yeah, heartbreaker, right? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, um, yeah, it was very heartbreaking. Yeah. Okay, Jim, how'd you get the call? Um... I got the call in the summertime. I was going to ask Franz one question, if, they, if he knew if there was anybody else that they had uh, interviewed or that was on the, on the radar for those jobs. As it turned out, it was Stavitsky, you call him, I call him Ito, Mario Ito, and yourself. Yep. But what uh, do you know if anybody else was being looked at? I do not. I, I know Donahue was, you know, because Donahue and Trickle, I sure. mean, were pretty loyal Yamaha guys to that point. And I know Donahue was, but I I had heard rumors that they'd talked about Trickle, but they thought he was too old. They they wanted younger, you know, a younger guy with. I mean, Shibitsky was older too, and they wanted a younger guy. So, sure. and you know, and then I don't know if and and I don't know if you know if Donahue Donahue went with Skidoo then, and I don't know what time frame that was, sure. and I I can't even be certain. I mean, I just hearsay you know what i mean yeah yeah no i was just curious if you had heard the, you know I'm, and i don't really have any concrete either uh, i got the call in the summer of 77 uh you know after the season was over i i kind of i should have put the pieces together but i had gotten uh, a call from arctic uh well, i was racing for team frustration jerry simison at the time 77 super Sox, uh, uh z and uh uh, they asked me to go up to the Kawartha Cup here in Canada, and they said, if you uh, want to come, you can come. We'll put your sleds in the semi along with the Team Arctic uh, sled, and I literally went with them. Uh, I don't think Jerry, no, Simpson didn't even come. It was just myself and, and you know, some tools and, and a little of this and that and, and uh, brought the sleds up to Keith, and they went up in the trailer. I flew up for the first time, and 
So I was kind of getting a, a little kid glove treatment right at that time and didn't really know for sure that this was happening because I hadn't got the call yet. But um, in any case, um, um, that summer came and Dennis Zulowski called me. First, I actually got a call from Bill Decker. He was the uh, the marketing manager, uh, uh, public relations for Arctic. I'm not exactly sure what his title was, but um, he called me and asked me if I'd be interested in the job. And I, and I said, uh, you know, certainly. So then it wasn't long after that Dennis Lewowski called and he said, uh, I want to meet you down in Minneapolis at a hotel down there. And that's kind of funny when you said it. I thought, maybe we were sitting across from the room. <laughs> we might have been. even know it. <laughs> Uh, so you know, I, I'm I, I'm a kid. I'm I think what maybe 23 years at that time. I have to do the math backwards. Well, whatever uh, whatever age you were, I was the same age. Yeah. So so uh, so I'm just going. You know, uh, how many guys are are up for this job, and you know how how did I get picked? Well, you know, I I and I've told this story before. Roger Stein was the pretty active and, and involved with the Arctic racing, you know, through those years with the Colts and Elzer and Thompsons and all that. And he came to a lot of the races as well as he does even to this time. And I didn't really, I mean, I knew he was there, but I didn't pay much attention to it all. But uh, I won the 440 Superstock at Ironwood, and I was leading the 440 Superstock at Eagle River in 77, and Trickle passed me on the last lap. And so I, I had some pretty close uh, races, and I, I think that, that that I was I was getting looked at in a different way that I knew and and when uh, Davy Thompson had gotten hurt at Eagle you know he had that horrendous accident and broke both of his legs and, um, they were looking to replace that that guy and and uh, that's how this whole thing kind of started otherwise I wouldn't have been if they'd have stayed with the two men team like they did at the end I wouldn't have ever got the chance but but they did and and they did. So anyhow, Dennis called and and we made a meeting at the to meet downtown in Minneapolis and and uh, took all the information. You know, could you you know get married? No, you know, would you be willing to come up and and spend six months of the year up here? And you know, sure, sure, sure. I was like, give me my checkbook. How much do you guys want for me to come? I'll come. I'd be happy to. <laughs> so. You know, at the time, I, I'm trying to remember, I, I had my contract and everything. I saved a lot of stuff from, from Arctic, and, and one of the collector guys out east has got a bunch of it. But uh, I think they paid me 2500 bucks a month for uh, and, you know to sign in the contract. And, they, and, and with that, all of the expenses were paid and travel. And of course, Arctic had its own, they had two planes, but um, their own pilots and and uh, transportation was all done with the trucks and all that. I mean, this was this was more than a dream come true. And I'm and I'm sure Trans was thinking the same thing. It was like, wow, wow, know, I, I just didn't know this was going to be great. Except for the fact was is now we're up. Uh, and I and I think the reality I, I say finally set in that I've got a race against Hughes and Thorsten and and Bunky and and Colcom and Elfner and and Rosenquist and and Eddie Shubitsky's, and I'm going, Jesus, you know, I was like fresh meat coming into the into the world of uh, of factory racing, and and so with friends, and it was like, you know, how, you know, what do I have that I'm going to be able to put up to the, to even measure up to this whole thing? I, you know, part of it is going to be learning to get up to speed with it, but 
but just the fact of the years of experience that they've had at a much higher level than we ever had. Not that we didn't have honored guys to eliminate in a, in a race, and I guess in the end, that's probably what they were looking at. Is they, I want two guys that are willing to, to dig their head down and, and, and find a way to get to the front, and, uh, and at those times, those lap races were fairly short. You know, Sometimes five laps, seven laps, ten lap features were, were huge. So, but um, so, but at that so anyhow, at, at that time, Jim, I'm I'm sure that like Yamaha, they expected us to um, be a, a spokesperson for Yamaha and not be the the bad guy out there. You know what I mean? They wanted really? you really? to be able to talk with the public and not give them a black eye. Absolutely, friends. I, you know, and part of that uh, when. When they looked at me, I'm sure uh, uh, Skyme saw a guy that was racing, but yet, you know, kept civil tongue while he was around the rest and, and uh, you know, could be a spokesperson for the company, as it turned out. And even in later years, I've probably done as much for Artie Cat and, and, you know, my alma mater as I as I ever did. And, and the other guys were really not such... Uh, uh, they, they they were pretty shy in the public, and and you know that that was part of the job was was going to these different places and racetracks and interviews and whatever. And so uh, you're right, friends. They, it, that had to be part of the deal too. Was the win record was important, but there was more to it. But you know, two of these manufacturers, all of them, they looked at us guys that came up through the ranks, which didn't come with a silver spoon in our mouth. We worked for everything we got, you know, to get to the point we were at, and that's that's why we were chosen, you know. But, you know, going against all these guys, I guess, uh, you know, wasn't as, once we got into it, it wasn't as nervous as I thought it was going to be because, like the Hewlings and the Thorsons, they all come up through the Superstock League, you know, that Jim and I both raced in all the time, but... Uh, but I was going to ask you, Jim, did you win that 440 Superstock in, in Ironwood? Because I only got a second, so you won it. I did. Okay, I did. well, I didn't I didn't remember who won it. I know I went home with a second. That was all I remembered. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was, uh, you know, the Yamaha, that was a fairly big track. And, uh, you know, driving the cat, they weren't the fastest, but yeah. the sled accelerated well and, and cornered well, but... Uh, um, but yeah, and Arn Skyn was there too, and that, that was I just a, I just big... didn't have that trick trick clutch to get the whole shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the clutch. So anyhow, I got the call from from Zulowski, met with him, and and I he didn't make the decision right then and there. You know, I, well, I'll give you a call later. So I too wondered, well, who else is up for this? And and uh, the rumor mill was that uh, Tommy and Richie Porter, their dad, uh, um, Rich Sr., he was the motorman for Articat, and, and maybe you guys know some of the Porters. Yeah. But they went on to being the what Team Arcan uh, was, Brian Espeseta. They had a, a Canada uh, factory team, Arctic, and but, you know, wasn't building uh, build the same way as, as being on the, what I'll call the A-team, if I, and I mean no disrespect to those guys, but um, but being on uh, with the, uh, Larry and, uh, and uh, Bobby. So, yeah. anyhow, I, I waited, I don't know how long, it was a few weeks, I think, before I got the call from Decker that uh, they 
had made their decision if I would accept the contract and, and do it to come, come on up. So up I went to Thief River and came to the door, and they had a special little card key to, to walk in uh, the door and, and into the race shop, and advanced engineering was all part of this whole thing. And, and I walked in this door, and, and, and in the room they were all milled around this prototype IFS sled, uh, Colcom, not Elkner, but uh, he was still back home in New London. But but uh, Wall, Dermont Wall, Davy Thompson, Colcom, Zulowski, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm probably forgetting a couple, and they're all and they look up at me walking in the door with Bill Decker, and and here's this new young buck, you know, city boy from from White Bear Lake. They knew of me, and they obviously knew I was coming, but. Uh, you know, 23 years old, and they were 30 years old, so there was a, a bit of a gap there, and and they were also all from the Thief River or around that area. So you got these this hometown group of and and against me. I don't mean it in any sense, but um, so I was literally scared shitless. I, I just did not know what to think of how I was going to find my way into this group. And and uh, so you know that that day kind of be whittled down as to you know this is what we've got this is what we're doing this is where it's going and uh, out to the test track and and, and so I was up there fairly early I, I I think we I think I ran in July uh, on the blacktop drag strip Larry had uh, had set up a sled with a with a rubber track and they already made a uh, blacktop drag strip with timers on it and. And uh, down we went, up and down on that thing, uh, you know, working with the engine and pipe and, and clutch, of course. And, and it wasn't the same as winter, but it was far better than doing nothing. So mm-hmm. um, that was my first run on it. I'll, I'll stop at that. I could go on and on. but uh, yeah, So, friends, friends, when you uh, – we'll jump back to France. So when you were uh, – so quite a, different, uh, quite a different situation here. So Jim's – he's up at Arctic in the, in the middle of the summer – testing this new sled and and you don't uh you don't see your sled till literally a month before the first race so uh, tell us about the first time you jumped on this ssr and 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 what was that like well we uh you know my situation was is quite a bit different than jim's they didn't have us come up i don't know my contract started i probably you know a week before we went to to Alaska there, and you know my contract was from such and such a day in November till I think almost the first of April, and and that was our my timeline. But I had to be at you know at the race shop down in Coon Rapids, so they also hired my mechanic, and he uh, so him and I would drive to work every single day down down to Coon Rapids, which was about an hour and 45 minutes away, I suppose. So we would drive down there, but I would be home every night, which was kind of nice. But anyway, when we went up to Alaska, we flew up there. And if I remember right, it was probably like only four or five hours of, of daylight up there. And I absolutely hated Alaska because I'm not a big drinker. And at that time, there was no TV up there. Either you like to drink at night or shoot pool. And that was the only two forms of entertainment you had up there at the lodges. And, you know, we'd have lights on working on our sleds, you know, late at night and different things. And and the first time I drove that SSR and Shibitsky, too, 
man, they were darty. It was like, what the hell am I doing on this thing? You know, because you're going down a straightaway at 90 miles an hour, and the thing is zipping back and forth from side to side. Well, at that time, with them IFS sleds, they ran their carbides straight, full length, but with no arch in them. Arch the skis, so we didn't have, you know, I ran less carbide than Shabitsky. Shabitsky ran, I think, I want to say 20 inches of freaking carbide on his, and it was just, it was really wild, where I was only running like 14 inches or something, but it was still snaky enough. So it took us a while to get get the thing worked out, you know, as far as, I honestly didn't like driving mine at first because it, it scared the hell out of me. I mean, I thought, <laughs> wow, this thing is, this you know, and they had good speed, but they just, uh, you know, they just were, were snaky. I mean, that was my first impression on it. Did you, did you, did you have quite a group uh, working on them, like, uh, like to try we to did. get that out? Yeah, I want to say there was at least probably myself and my mechanic and Shubitsky, and then his mechanic was... Uh, uh, Tony Asumi, I think it was, or something. You also was, had Lyle Forsgren. Wasn't he the team manager? Yes, Lyle Forsgren was the team manager. Yeah. But he had he didn't communicate very well with the Japanese. Okay. I mean, they, they were kind of button heads a lot, in my opinion. Yeah. Did, um, you, did you have a, a 76 or, or a 77 to, to kind of match, to, to kind of match against we had We had Shibitsky 76. SRX that he had won the WC with up there, yeah. and that was a leafer. We didn't have any 77s up there, but we had the 76 up there, and then and he, Mario Itu was up there too, and and uh, and we struggled, you know, and we struggled hard. We came back here, and we kept melting it, melting our motors down once we got back here, and then they figured out we had a, a fuel problem with them and then we started getting special race gas and we kept you're running uh, uh, the, the consumers back here they were, they were running aviation fuel weren't they I, right I, I recall yeah but our our motors on our snow pro sleds were a little bit hotter than the than the stock ssrs mm -hmm. you know so they they i don't believe the consumer sleds were melting like our snow pro sleds were but we went through several engines cylinders and pistons until we got our fuel under control, right? And was that front uh, suspension, friends? Was that? Do you think it was more derived from from Japanese um, uh, development? I mean, were, were they the ones that were making it, or was there someone particular that, you know, I mean, in the Arctic, I could give you some names, but you know, that you would go to that he was kind of the man behind the front end. Uh, they this was all over in Japan. They they all were done over there. It was all done over there, and. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever, how close you've ever been around Japanese, but anytime they they love to take pictures, and they'll take pictures yeah. of of different things, and then they take it back to Japan and they try to replicate it, you know, and that's what they were doing with this IFS, and and it was somebody's idea over there, and I I really don't know who they were, you know, whose whose idea it was, but. We never got to talk to them people, so we just, you know, and and prior to '78, all the '76s and '77 Yamahas, 
they were all having great success with them. I mean, like with Trubisky winning the WC on that 76, they thought they, you know, they had a pretty good sled. Well, and in, in the end, it wasn't, it wasn't that great of a sled. Yeah, I think that, you know, their forte at that point, the sled, those early uh, uh, SRXs were light, and, and obviously the engine was powerful. They were talking about a company that knows how to make a two-stroke racing motor, my God. Yeah. So, you know, they had the, they had the, the, the power of it all there, but the, I think, and I'm, and I'm certain you'd agree, is that uh, the downfall to that SRX was the, the lack of the, of the uh, the communication and the harmony of all of the the components to come together. I had my my IFS, the guy that built the IFS sled uh, or the front end, Roger Gage, was was right there either at the track and he was at most of them, uh, or back to Thief River when the sleds went back home. So it was a daily, hourly uh, progression of what what he saw, what I saw, what the competition was like, and you didn't stand a chance, Brad. You just didn't. You know, no, you I, had to have that that same kind of just like Polaris did when they built it. They were all those watchful eyes. Uh, you know, this, 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 and this driver input factor Rosso change cut weld whatever, and and uh, you know you were doomed from the get go because you uh, and you do you you obviously wouldn't have known how to build it because it was brand new. Right, exactly. The beginning of it all. And so, unfortunately, French, French on, on the SSR, did, did you not have uh, different shocks uh, on the? I thought I saw different shocks on the front of uh, your SSR, uh, uh, a different manufacturer than the than the production ones. Yeah, we had a different manufacturer. Um, what 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 what, uh, what what all? How much how much different was your was the the factory sled than the uh, than the production units? Uh, oh, I I would guess they were probably seven eight horsepower more, and they were lighter, more extensive magnesium. Yeah, yeah, right. And but you know, getting back to Jim talking about all their people that they had at Articat, you know, and, and once we probably were, I want to say, right after Eagle River, we realized that our SSRs just were not going to cut the mustard. Yeah, you guys qualified for the uh, the world championship that year, right? Right. I I got in. I don't know. Mario Ito got in, too. I think he got a second, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, I think he did. And I don't know if Shibitsky got in or not. Yeah, let me uh, put... But so I mean that's that's uh, you must have you must have made a ton of improvements. Like I remember Lyle Forsgren telling me that they were supposed to be building a race shop for you in down in Minneapolis, and for a long time you were just working out of an old yep. gas station. Probably right up until middle of January we were working out of a gas station. Yeah. Yeah. But after Eagle River, all the guys down at Coon Rapids, Hitu and the Japanese and we all had kind of a, a say in it. They built a new chassis, and they had a they had a racetrack down there, an oval racetrack, and they built a new chassis, and actually it was a tube frame chassis. And because at that point we still thought we were going to be racing in in '79, and so they built this new chassis, and actually the Japanese had bought a new skidoo. Because at at that time you could buy skidoos, they bought a new skidoo 
Super Stalker 440, and we were testing that one against our no pro SSRs, and we were getting faster lap times <laughs> with the Super Stalker from Skidoo than we were with our own racing sleds. Oh my God. So, so the Japanese actually, they, and, and all of us, and Lyle For, Lyle Forsgren was the main one behind it. We built a new tubular frame chassis, and we were testing that, and then we put the Yamaha motors in. And by this time, we had the Yamaha motor figured out, so they were living on us. We had our clutching down pretty good in them, and we put that Yamaha motor in this new tube frame chassis, and we had extraordinary extraordinarily fast lap times with this new tube frame and that was gonna <coughs> gonna be our sled for 79 mm -hmm. well then after the bunky incident up in Beauxjour and Polaris pulled out of racing and Yamaha pulled out of racing it was uh, that was it and I took a lot of pictures of that tube frame just because of you know because I wanted to eat them and and it was pretty unique how it, it was and it it worked good so we would have liked to went to 79 and could have maybe give the other boys a little bit more of a run for their money yeah it's quite unfortunate i mean that was that was a huge investment for yamaha to have a sled for one year yep. and uh and fold it up so um jim uh during during that okay so so during in 78 uh any 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 races that uh really come to mind that uh were really exciting, frustrating, um, you know, um, good battles. <laughs> oh, well, let's we start, we start with start the, the openers in Alexandria. Is it not? Is it? Uh, is that the opener? Yeah, yeah. I think it was. I don't know if we had a. a no, the opener was in Kinross. Oh yeah. yeah. Kinross, uh, Michigan. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. We went to Kinross right. and then Alex. And Alexandria, yeah. How'd, how'd, how'd the opener? How'd the opener go? This is the first time on the track for all these new, new sleds, and you know, it must have been. I mean, there must have been a, a crap load of sleds there, uh, you know, for for the first event. There was. I mean, we had people. We had some Swedish guys that came, and they were going to be run, uh, you know, three or four. I would think up through Eagle River, so they they were there, and they actually were in our race shop. Uh, we housed uh, two or three different drivers for them. That was a. Uh, yeah, I mean, I told Hal that we had these Kayabi, or I don't know how you say the name. It was a Japanese air shock, and uh, the, there's a cover shot of Snow Track or Snow Week or one of them where it shows my sled coming around the corner, and, and the front end's pushing horrendously. The shock is flat. We found that out, uh, long story short, that the shocks were fine while they were warm, but the, and we all of our testing from the race shop over to the test track was a matter of a block away, go back and forth and back and forth and developing this. And then the first time we take the sleds, put them in the semi, bring them to Kinross, and now all of a sudden the front ends are just, they're, they're, they won't hold the weight. Yeah, and, you know, what happened? Well, we're out of air and we, we, we used nitrogen. We tried everything. Of course, we didn't have any options for, for coilovers at Kinross, so it was a, pretty much a flop for any kind of uh, um, you know, performance over there. But So that was my first race, and... And uh, and walk away with nothing because of machines. I mean, France probably had his his handfuls of trying to get the machines to handle well. And so that you know, again, Polaris had a had a significant advantage because they had a year under their belt with the uh, uh, with the machines that worked real well. And here we are all trying to sort 
coming on awful strong. You know, Hayes sure. and Donahue had some big motors in there on the big tracks. The, the skidoos were running pretty fast at that point. They were catching yeah. Valeris. Yeah. Right. So, you know, as far as the, the, any, uh, it, probably the, the, the worst thing that happened was that that second race uh, at Alexandria, as you may well know, that uh, Sammy Sessions uh, crashed his sled and killed and was killed. Right. And it wasn't long after a heat or so afterwards that Larry Colton had uh, a belt blue and it caught and stuck into the driven clutch and it locked the sled up and he went flying off the track, uh, going down into the third turn and and literally landed, crashed right next to where this tree was that Sammy Session had hit. And and I think that was enough for Larry. I know it was enough for Larry because it was a fact. He he got off the sled, took his helmet off, and walked around the back side of the track and back to the semi and in the back door and flopped down on there. And he said, I'm not riding them, them things anymore. That, that's it. And yeah. he put his helmet down, and he, he threw it in right then and there. So, you know, here I am, second race of the year, and, and looking at one man dead and another one that has a, a, a umpteen years of of seniority and knowledge and and everything else, and he's done. He's not riding this thing anymore. Yeah. So, geez, you know, I don't know if I, you know, I mean, you, you, you how long do you dwell on it? You, you know, it's just these are serious. These machines have a mind of their own, and 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 they are they're very very twitchy and touchy. You 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 stay on top of those handlebars all the while you're on it, under throttle or off the throttle, and let alone if you know anything in between. So, so it was it was the infancy of, of some pretty tough uh, um, decisions. You, it was going to take a while before we got these machines sorted out to where they were, you know, literally, you know, turn and look backwards at, at somebody coming behind you. I wouldn't even dream of turning around. <laughs> do you recall? Do, do you recall the the speed difference uh, uh, from from seventy seven to seventy eight? Or, or lap really, I don't. We were running between well, ninety and hundred. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that was kind of the the, the motors for Marduk. I think the seventy-seven uh, Snow Pro engine was at four forty was probably eighty, eighty-six, eighty-seven horse, and I, you know, in the end, my best motor of my four forty at Eagle River was a hundred and two. So you know we didn't we didn't have a lot of power back then, and and the differences between them was, you know, of course it's got more to be uh, a big difference, but but not so much. It was all the fact that you could hold the hold the but, down you, longer. You know, ninety to hundred miles an hour down the straightaways when them things would be snaky was pretty wild. I mean, and you were talking about Larry retiring at that point. Well, this sled was a new animal for him, too. He was used to the leafers, and now all of a sudden we're on these here things here that are they're a handful till we get you know till we get them sorted out yeah, yeah. yeah. that was all uh, well, you know that was a that was a significant time for me that if they have Larry Colton done and 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 uh you know okay, T Martic is now two. And and what what is he going to do and and that and, and again I, I the story with Hal was it ended up being the best thing that ever happened for Team Arctic and for our Snowpro development because he went back and and he wouldn't race under competition but he did in fact continue on developing the the Snowpro sled for all the years uh, uh, even and through through '81. So a lot of different things changed, and we dwell into that. 
that how because that's part of your other story but um it it really helps to have larry Fulton back at the shop working on uh, other little small things both suspension engine clutch whatever and, and again to friends is the side you know just knowing all of that and you guys having to drive back and forth to to work and and have you know minimal uh input from from engineers was was you you were fighting a really tough battle we were fighting a tough enough one that we thought and uh and to have you not have all the resources that we did it would have been real hard for young to be successful so uh guys let's let's move and then from 78 let's kind of jump a little bit uh franz you you uh you ended up uh running a, a factory polaris sled as an independent did you in 79 yeah, after uh well after Bunky got killed up there then I got Bunky's sleds the following year from Polaris that we got to race and uh how did that how did that deal happen? How did that deal happen? I don't know. Polaris called me up and said they weren't going to race and we want, you know, um Arctic was still racing and Skidoo was still racing but uh Polaris and Yamaha were not, and and uh, obviously Hewlings went to Scorpion, and and Thorson went to Scorpion, so they had their sleds, and and I got uh, funky sleds, and Todd Elmer, I don't know whose his who whose sleds he got, but he got one, you know, maybe he got Thorson's sleds, I'm not sure, and we just raced them as independents. Polaris helped us a lot. We didn't get no salary check but we they did a lot for us and you qualified for the uh so was that a, those were fuji those were the polaris motors from 78 just with the different right put on them and then <laughs> um we 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 had a rotex motor in in one four forty for the for a lot of the x races and <clears throat> for the world championships that was the one i was kind of jabbing jim about uh, as far as i <laughs> I had got a whole shot there, and yeah, I jumped the flag. But when you were, you know, we had a we had a special built Rotex motor in there that Larry Ruglin had dynoed and did all the work on. Right. Leroy Lindblad did the clutching on it, and the clutching was real high. And you'd try to read the flagman just right to get get the R's up there. And this flagman was a little bit slow, and and when she slammed in, I thought, well, it's going to be a red flag. And I remember going by, looking at the flagman, and as I'm going by him, he looks at me, and he just pulled the flag. <laughs> he gave you that's, one. <laughs> that's the honest truth. And, I, you know, that's how it went down. Right, Jim? Yeah. Oh, you remember that, Jim? Oh, yeah. Oh, I remember it real well, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, that's that, that that thing's all documented in that in that film that Articat did in in '79 with uh, with Bob Elsner because Cat right. won the world championship for like ten years, right? And uh, so so Elsner ended up winning that race. And uh, what ended up happening with you, Franz? Did you? <laughs> I think I ended up third or fourth. And to be very honest, um, I should have won that race. The sled was capable of winning that race. But that thing was such a, I mean, it was such a rocket that I just, I mean, I, I'd i never ridden anything with that much power ever in my life. You just got played out or? Oh, I, 
it was just, uh, yeah, I suppose I got played out, but it just, uh, it just kind of freaked me out. You know, I had ridden that sled uh, three days before that. We took it up to Beauxjour and tested it with Polaris, and I got one of them sleds, and Doug Hayes got one of them sleds, and uh, Hayes crashed in the heat, so he didn't make it into the finals, but Hayes had one of them Polaris's too with the Rotex motor in it. And it was just, it was super fast. I mean, it was one, that was one time when I can't blame the sled, you know, with, with the SSRs, I can blame the sled, but with that Polaris, it was, I just couldn't handle it. I mean, and it wasn't that the sled wasn't capable. Um, as we raced it more throughout the year, and I got more used to it, I, I was well onto it. I would like to have raced that sled uh, a few times earlier than that, because I would have been used to the sled, but... Um, <laughs> at that time, the 440 Fuji motor, and I watched it with my own eyes on Polaris's dyno, and that and the Fuji motor was Bunky's old motor, put out 103 horse. We put the 440 Rotex on the dyno, 127 horse. Wow, <laughs> out of a 440, and that was after Ruglin rebuilt the rotary the rotary valve system and they built new pipes and did different things and them Polaris boys they can make horsepower too you know and I mean they I think they they're probably making more power than what Skidoo is making out of their own engines you know and so Jim in 79 was uh was uh a, a big year for for Cat now you've got the uh you get your sleds more fine-tuned and and uh and uh you had a big you had a big year at Eagle River that year. You won every class except uh, the World Championship, right? Right. Yeah. That. Well, and and again, back to the Hal story. I hate to say uh, there's not going to be anything special for you, Hal, if we <laughs> we highlight on all these pieces. But um, right before Eagle River, and again, now Larry Colton is back in the race shop uh, doing development. We had used uh, variations of clutches, but particularly we were running um, uh, Comet drive clutches and a Comet-driven clutch. We had a few variations of there in between. The new Arctic-driven wasn't built yet. That didn't come out until the late 80s. But um, but Brad and, and Steve Gorson, you know, they were pretty fast. They were winning a lot of races, and they were, you know, to be quite frankly, they were they were faster than us. And, uh, and just, uh, you know, take off and, and general acceleration in and around and off the corners. And, you know, it's frustrating for, for us to have to use these clutches. We, you know, finally go, we, we need to try this. But, you know, if that's where the problem is, then, uh, then we need to find out where, what they have that we don't. And, and uh, I think Davey Thompson went up, and, of course, Polaris was uh, – they were good friends. Uh, you know, uh, he went up to, to Rosso and got a whole pallet full of of Polaris uh, RXL drive and driven clutches and brought them back to Arctic. And there they were in the in the middle of the race shop. So Larry's job at the time was to sort that out. I mean, I say job. He just did it. He put those clutches on the uh, the Arctic engine. Uh, I think it was the week before. Well, I don't remember where we were racing, but we were gone anyhow. And 
and came back to this uh, RXL clutch on there. A lot of things had to be done differently, but nonetheless, uh, he sat down with Bobby and I, and, and uh, my mechanic at the time was Dwayne Graham and, and Dermont, and, and uh, kind of gave an overview of how these RXL clutches work, the spline sliders, the, uh, the springs. That at that time, they had uh, little set screws on the faces that you would turn the, uh, the heel of the clutch weight in and out to change engagement and belt deflection and so it was, uh, okay, well, this is all brand new, but, you know, put it up on the jack stand, spin it up, watch it go in, watch it come out, listen to the motor. Yeah, okay, we got this to where it's sounding about right, and out to the track you'd go. And and uh, wasn't long where, you, you know, this is pretty nice. These things are, you know, consistent. They would take off nice. They would, you could repeat a start. You could make power, you know, pull nice off of the corners and, and uh, so Roger Gage, uh, the suspension man, was working and looking at this sled and said, you know, we, we need to get these radius rods. They need to be parallel. Uh, part of the problem we're having is, is that when they have an uphill climb, uh, when they say from the outside to the inside, the sled wants to roll up onto itself. So we're going to lower this down and we're going to straighten these rods out and take this travel out of here so that, uh, that they can't go over center. Well, we went out to the racetrack, and, and I remember Dennis saying, you know, this is all about this corner, Jim. They made the racetrack, the Arctic test track, was, was built identical to the, to the length and the size of the corner of Eagle River. It didn't have the banking on it, but they went so far as to bring sawdust, and uh, they had a crew, that, that maintenance crew at Arctic Cat that did the parking lots and all that got commandeered into building our racetrack and icing it every day. I had fresh ice and, and a repaired racetrack every single day. Those guys would go out, they'd plow it off in the morning if there was snow on it, and anyhow, they came and put sawdust in the the ice with the uh, with the layers of ice inside of it because that's what Eagle River used. So Dennis and I sat, and you know, uh, he called me Bucky. That was my nickname, and and he said, I want you to just keep going into this corner, and I want to, I want, what's the first thing that breaks loose, the front end or the back end or whatever, and we're going to work this down, and uh, and we're going to get this thing to, to go around this corner as fast as you can go. And I don't want you to let off until you absolutely think you're going to go off the other end, you know. All right, all right, all right. So around and around and around and around we went, and, and uh, clutching it all the while, and and we came to Eagle River in 79, and, you know, I mean, I, I knew we had a good sled uh, before we left because, I, you know, I mean, we just, we had, you know, that week, Larry gave us enough of the pieces to get this right uh, quickly and, and clutched in. And, you know, if you think about putting two uh, set of drive and driven clutches and, and on a machine in less than a week and, and turning it into world championship equipment. I mean, I, I won the 250, 340, 440, and Elsner won the WC, and I actually finished third. So you must have finished fourth, Franz, because yeah, I know Bobby, Bobby Donahue was ahead of me in second, and I, I couldn't catch him. But uh, because of that start, I just got so far back. And, and uh, But we had, we had handling. We had uh, a good, good clutch snowmobile for, for the, the river race and, and uh, that, that's so the Jim I gotta yeah. ask you a question on the clutching if I can sure um, how how you know it seemed like uh, Brad and Steve they had them Polaris clutches damn near from day one on the Scorpion I mean or, yep. or real early on 
When they had them you, from the beginning. They, okay. When when did they finally give you the go-ahead that you guys could run them then? Like, the week before Eagle. The week before Eagle. Eagle in, in 1979. We couldn't run them in 78. Probably a little bit of stubbornness trying to yep. find something else. But uh, the week before Eagle, they finally said, uh, you can, you know, you guys got to win. We, we don't want to lose to Scorpion. We want Articat to win. We, you know, wh- or whatever, you know, if that's what you think it's going to take, then put them on there and find out what the difference is. Because they also needed to learn it for engineering and the development of, of the next wave of clutches for Articat. It was, well, what is the difference with an Arctic and, and the rest uh, uh, and a Polaris clutch? So, Jim, you know, is this uh, Roger Stein? Is he the guy that's giving you the go-ahead, or is this? Uh... Yep, yep, yep. Really? That must have really yeah. been a big pill for them to swallow to do that, eh? It was a big pill. It was a big pill, and and it was, we were after the season was done, we had to no more of that. You guys, I don't care what you do to make you can copy it just <laughs> down to the T, but the outside of this thing will not say Polaris Industries on there anymore, and. And all kinds of variations. Stu's driven collection there, Snow Pro Sled, was, was a variation of a Helix uh, uh, Polaris driven. And, and so, you know, the, the, a lot of people jumped on this whole thing. And, and quite honestly, it was a very simple system, and it just worked real well. And, and, uh, and you give uh, Larry Ruglin and, and uh, um, um, Oh, I'm not. That's not the guy. Lindblad. Lindblad did Lira, Lindblad. work on on developing those clutches. And Burnett, you know, they had worked on it for several years. It came in the later uh, um, TXs, but uh, anyhow, that was the culmination of, as far as I'm concerned, the finest racing clutch. And probably to this day, if somebody said, Jim, you, I'm going to put you out here against Franz Rosenquist. You're going to have five laps to get this thing right. And the race is on. I'd, I'd probably walk over there and put them on my sled right off the bat. And of course, that would be French. <laughs> you didn't touch that, Ben? That's funny. So yeah, that was a big deal for them, and and uh, you know, um, and we learned a lot of stuff in the development and the and the clutch people at Articat. Um, you know that that was the next wave of you know how to make something like this. Why is it like that? They built clutch dynos and and spun these things up so many different ways and squeeze curves and learning how to uh, how and where and why and sheave angles and belt angles and you know again this was all at the beginning of this stuff. This was this was uh, you know un, uncharted territory up until this point. They had. But- Jim, if you think that was a big pill for Arctic to swallow, you should have been in Polaris shoes when they put them three Rotex motors in their sled. (laughs) There's another one. There's another one, Franz. I I fully understand that they they had to distance themselves from that, other than the fact that, you know, Jimmy Hedlund and and Ruckland and and Lindblad are all standing right there. They took this to the two-pop, but you're right. They they, they did they, they said it. They that. told me. They told me many times. They said, you know. They said it's the people in the stands that see a Polaris go by. That's all we're looking for. Yeah. It doesn't matter what's under the hood. They actually ground the Rotex off the top of the motors, so it sure. there was no place on it that said Rotex except on the serial number plate that uh, that said Austria. 
Well, you never you had know, any of the, uh, you know, Villeneuve and these guys that are running against you, the, the Skidoo team going, you know, I mean, you guys kept this thing shrouded under a blanket, under a tarp, or in the back of the truck as soon as you were done racing, so they didn't know you were running their motors? Oh, they, everybody on the racetrack oh, yeah. knew we were running their motors, and just like everybody on the racetrack knew that Artie had Polaris clutches in after at such a point, and everybody knew that Scorpion was running the Polaris clutches right away. And you know, it was, it was a free for all by then. Right, Jim. I mean, everybody knew it. Oh yeah, yeah. No, and 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 the magazines, you know, they they couldn't hardly hide it if they. Uh, I I don't remember the articles from a week and this and that, but uh, um, you know, it wasn't like you could keep them um, pay them off and, and keep it quiet. It it. Uh, you know, it was a pill to swallow, but there was a lot of engineering that got learned out of all of this stuff, too. And, uh, you know, Arctic was ready. You know, why don't we have a, a rotary valve engine? If they, you're going to tell me that these skidoos come stock, 118, 120 horsepower, and, and we're, we're got the best engine guys in the country, and you can get 105? Hell, yeah, right? You know, what, what the hell? Build one. You know, I want <laughs> I want a rotary valve next year. I don't need to. You don't tell me. I otherwise I got to put one of those engines in. So you know you start getting frustrated as a driver when you know it's out there, and if you can pick the best of all of it, which is exactly the Phantom story. I took the best Artie Cat that there ever was, and I put the best engine that there ever was, and I put the pieces together, and it was it was fast. So, but but anyhow, uh, yeah, it was it was tough for them. Artie said it was going to take a million dollars back in '79. To tool up a, a rotary valve engine, and and you know, okay, well that's a lot of money. But the worst part was that they said we won't make anything that we can't put in production sleds to use it for the next wave of it all. And the biggest problem with a rotary valve was there was too many moving parts. They the warranty issues of it all and keeping it just like Skidoo did. They dropped the rotary and went on to reed cage engines, and and obviously technology has changed them immensely, but. But there's a lot of stuff in those rotors that uh, that any piece gets inside of there and comes in the front. Ay ay ay. So, so anyhow, uh, they didn't. They wouldn't. They couldn't afford it, and and they developed their engines. Uh, you know, and history will speak for itself from that point on. But uh, but that's kind of the, the the long and the short of the '79 and the clutch and the motors and Granny running his engines and we're running our clutches and our our our, our version of clutches. And it was. Uh, that was probably a big pivotal year of, of uh, picking the best of the best and putting it into whatever it takes wins. Well, you know, and, and Arctic uh, was at that time was Arctic's to do. You know, Polaris was done and Yamaha was done, so it, uh, the battle was on. And then, of course, you got your Jacques Villeneuve coming in, and then the next wave is going to be twin trackers, and so that started a whole other deal. Well, so, so in 8081. 80, uh, I guess eighty, uh, Franz. You you uh, you you went from Skidoo. You went or went from Polaris to Skidoo. Or we kept the Polarises for two yeah. years. I kept them for seventy nine and eighty. And eighty in nineteen eighty was a big year because of the fact yeah. we went from four forties to three forties. Because after we had all the people killed in seventy eight, they implemented a rule that. We're going to outlaw the 440cc motors and go to 340s, but uh, supposedly or whatever they needed a, a year to put this in play. Correct, Jim? Yep, exactly. And so we kept the Polarises for two years, but in in uh, in in 
80, we had to put a 340 Rotex in there instead okay. of the 440. So were you running with Todd Elmer at the time, like together with? Right, the... we were we were actually running for team frustration. Okay. At that time, in seven, you know, Todd Elmer and myself were running 79 and 80 for team frustration. Where did you base out of Todd or uh, uh, France? Out of Fargo, out of Jerry's uh, oh, motorcycle Fargo? shop. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know where. It was right on Main Street there, right? Yep, yep, yep. Suzuki of Fargo. That's where I lived the first year that I raced for Team Frustration 2 was, yep. uh, was in Fargo. I'll be there. So was, yep. was this guy a dealer? He was a big dealer? Uh, he, did, yeah, he, was he was an old boat uh, racer. Yeah, oh, yeah? Well, yeah, Jerry was. Uh, the dealership was Suzuki of Fargo. That was the name of the of the company. And, and Jerry ran his machine shop, hot rod shop, out of that same, uh, if I'm, we're, we're talking the same thing, friends. Yep. He ran it out of that same shop. So. You're right. Is he still around? Is the dealership still around? No. I don't I, well, I'll say no, I don't think so. Yeah. No, the dealership isn't, but Jerry still lives up around Detroit Lakes, from what I gathered. Mm-hmm. He, he's dead now, Fred. He, he is? Died two years ago. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. He had a lot of complications and uh, died a couple of years ago, along with Dick Barr, of the brain child of the, of the Rotax engine that you're Dick talking Barr about. Dick um, a lot of great guys raced for Jerry Simonson. Yeah, yeah. Steve Dorson was a was a yep. former driver. Son of Beck, Rich Son of Beck. Yep. Uh, um, oh, you, you, Toddy Elmer, yourself, yep. myself. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you guys, uh, you know, Franz, you, you, I'm, I'm looking, going back through some old snow weeks here. Correct me if I'm wrong. The last year. When did you when did you actually stop racing? Eighty five. Eighty five. So yep. I've got you down for seven times you qualified for the world championship. Seven yep. race through. And Jim, I've got you seven times also. Yep. Wow. And, that's uh, that's amazing. We're both the same age we were in the final or in the WC's same mountain. Seven times, yeah. Pretty well, you know, every year you guys were pitted up against each other. Busy odd year where one guy didn't qualify, the other guy did. Um, Jim, you, you were, of course, you were with Arctic Great in 81, and, it, and you know, I was reading here today that it looks like in 81, you guys, uh, Team Arctic Cat was really in, in trouble, and, uh, and you guys basically drove to Eagle River with your sleds in the back of a couple of half-ton trucks and, and ran, and Hewlings won that year, and, and uh, Elsner got a third, and... Um, and that was the year that Villeneuve showed up with the first twin tracks Skidoo. So what was that all like? Uh, um, you know, I mean, here's, here's Arctic. I mean, there, I mean, times were tough. There was low snow. Uh, sled sales had just plummeted. I think Skidoo was looking at purchasing Polaris at the time. Um, Skidoo come now. I mean, they're they're firing on all cylinders. They, they're bringing this, you know, Villeneuve with twin tracks. Like, what was going through your head now when you're showing up at Eagle? Well, when I w- would show up at Eagle and, and I would line up with Villeneuve, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't on the outside and was going <laughs> into the corner. <laughs> that's the that's the year that the first one had the wings on it and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of scary. <laughs> and and you know, he, I mean, he he drove them in there pretty hard, didn't he, Jim? Yeah. But Decker yeah, had one too, didn't he? Jacques, Jacques yeah. Al Allen was with the factory team. Yeah. Allen and Jacques were both on the factory twin tracks. 
Alan drove that. Uh, I think that Mr. Boston or whatever was written on it. He had it at the 50th, and I hadn't seen one for a long time. But uh, you know, the, the early twin trackers. That you know, if I think back through it all, they were so unreliable. And um, you know, Jaco, he, he he's such a flamboyant guy. You know, what I mean, he he he, he, he just uh, I, I don't know how to explain it. His and his, and his brother was just like that too. I mean, they. They, they had their own style that to slide around the corner or, or drive in so deep that, that you know, until the sled just shattered and shuddered and and came bounced off of something and go. I mean, it was a it was a different kind of a, um, uh, I don't know, I don't a style for no lack of a better word, but um, those machines at that time, you know, they, they couldn't take much of a fuse and 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 that most of the time they broke. If he did make a, a lap or two or however far, it usually didn't go very far, and which was very much the same story of those first alouettes that Jill drove too. They they hardly ever finished. They once in a while they did, and they and of course the crowd loved it because you know it was the underdog and and uh, it had this great you know great uh, look uh, flowing through the corner and, and that. But but anyhow, as far as the with the 81 with the Quintac era starting, I, I don't think I worried too much about it at the time. Arctic was thinking about it. They actually built a twin track, and uh, and I did do a little development with it. That same rock gauge that built our bar front end uh, on the Snowbrook sled built a, you made a couple of the twin trackers. And, and I went and drove the sled too, but it was so heavy, and, and uh, you know, it's it, 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 it just didn't seem like that was going to be. It was going to need a lot of refinement to get to the speed that we were already going with our, our single trackers. And looking at the bigger picture of having a track that disengages on the inside and 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 spreading that uh, the rear width of the sled out to the forty-ish inches and having a shock on either side and adjustability, the wave of that of of the future of, of how well that sled ended up going around the corner was was a magnificent idea. It's just at the beginning of it all, I, you know, we're talking about 1981. I, I just, you know, just count the laps down. If they are in the front, they won't be there very long. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so the, the first, I guess the first couple of years, you were still racing the single, the single tracker against, against the twin trackers. But uh, in, in, in 81 uh, or 80, uh, you, you were running the phantom sled now, right? Right, yeah, 80, 82, 3, 4, 5, and 6, I, I, I ran the phantom sled in variations of it, but nonetheless, single track. Yeah, and Franz, you were still on the, you were on the Skidoo uh, single tracker still? Yep, I had had 81 Skidoo single tracker <coughs> that we we qualified four times with, with that 80, with the same 81 yeah. at the WC, and we also, um, Skidoo was really pushing their twin trackers towards in the mid '80s, and after I was, you know, running pretty good at Eagle River with the single tracker, they wanted to get me on one of their twin trackers. So in '85, they gave me a new twin tracker, and I still had my '81 single tracker that ran pretty well. So I, we went to Eagle River, and I was faced with a with a with a a situation where when we qualified, I set fastest lap time with my single tracker, 
than I did with the twin tracker. So now all of a sudden I had to decide now for the WC, do I want to run the, the single tracker, which was had the would have pole position and the fastest lap time, or do I want to go with this twin tracker that mid-pack? <laughs> and I, to be honest, I, I'm kind of a single tracker guy. I mean, I ra raced that twin tracker, but to me it was not really like racing, you know? I mean, I come up the ranks on a single tracker, and, and just getting on the twin tracker, I just didn't like it because it was slow down the straightaway. Yeah, you could go around the corners wide open with it, but you'd get usually get passed on the straightaway by the single tracker. And that's probably why I, I kind of quit when I did because the twin trackers were coming into play and I just didn't really want to jump into the twin trackers. Yeah. In, in, in 81, though, let's, let's start uh, the uh, Tournament of Champions. Talk, yeah. about, talk us about that. That was, a, that was kind of a big deal and uh, kind of an exciting race format and, and kudos for Kawasaki coming in and supplying all those sleds to Well, that was, that was one way for Kawasaki to win. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they didn't have they didn't have a race team, so they just took ten match <coughs> collies and then put the top ten independents on there. And Jim, did you get did you get were you on that team? No, Arctic wouldn't let us do it. Oh, they wouldn't. Oh, eh? and, yeah, okay. No. Yeah. And they, they, they would have when that concept came out. They uh, they were trying to convince them if you want to do it and switch sleds every year, then then we would uh, you know we could run this. Then, then they would have let us driven the other uh, manufacturers' machines, but yeah. because they wouldn't, it was their deal. They no, we're not going to put our machine drivers. Yeah, I think it was it, Arctic drivers or the or the Skidoo dri drivers didn't, because Donahue got in there. But I think at that yeah. time, uh, Decker and uh, and Villeneuve were on the factory team. But then later years, then Decker was was uh, in that deal because I know he went with us to. Finland when we did the final race, Alan did. So, but yeah, it was a pretty good deal. Like IROC, you know, that was a that was a kind of a neat deal to have all the different guys driving the same cars. I, I think the concept was a great idea. It just, uh, you know, Arctic wouldn't buy it, so uh, yeah. I never, you know, I watched you guys, but I, I never heard of it. You know, you, you talk about them being matched, and yeah, we couldn't work on them. We didn't work. They had their own people that worked on them. And then you drew a clothespin out of a hat, and that was the number of sled you you raced that day. So you didn't know which sled you were going to have, and one sled you could draw would be would handle decent, and the next sled was just you know I don't know why, but they were supposed to be all set up the same, but one wouldn't work, and the next one would. Yeah, did, did, was there one that did work really well? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you know, you got something going for you if you go out there and you win one race with one, and you come back in and you draw the same sled over again. You know, you got something going for you then. Yeah. Okay. Brings up a good point. Like, what during your? I know you guys were were primarily oval racers, but did you did you race any like cross country or do any of that? Uh, you know, the early snow cross at Alexandria. Did you compete in any of those events? I didn't. I, I didn't. I guess uh, you know I I didn't compete um, back in the early 70s. I I did did the I 500 and that kind of thing on a snow jet. How'd you um, do it? You finish? No, that first the first day uh, 
I got kicked out for road running. <laughs> How long? But now, don't laugh. You weren't the only one, probably. <laughs> you're exactly right, because... Uh, you were, some, if you were on a Polaris or a Cat, you would have been still in it. Well, yeah. you know, I... I I knew who had won the race before, and when I was down in the ditch just pounding the hell out of myself, and Stan Hayes passed me up on the road, I got up on the road and I just thought, you know, this guy's won this race a couple times. <laughs> so I got up on the road and I just followed him. <laughs> and I just followed him. When he went in the ditch, I went in the ditch. And we got in that day, the, the top 20 was kicked out for road running, and I was in the top 20. So that was my experience on the I-500. Yeah. But in in in, in '84, uh, uh, um, Jim, you 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 finally won the uh, the, the world championship. Uh, talk talk to us about that on 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 uh, the Phantom Sled. I was just going to say when when I uh, Arctic got uh, to go cross country racing, I was thinking the same thing. I thought, well, now I'm going to get a chance to run the I-500 on a factory sled, but. They came back when we went to ask them, Elsner and I, and they said, no, you're not going to, none of the oval drivers are, we want to keep you guys doing this. We don't want you hurt and whatever. So really? I've uh, never got a chance to run cross country at all. Um, they already had, had their factory, uh, um, Brian Nelson and, and uh, Doug Oster and, and Chester Bowman. Uh, they had their factory guys, which were in our same race shop right across from us. So I actually worked in the same places and watched what they were developing through country but never got to do it so um 84 that's where you're going Is yeah that's that a, that's uh you 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 finally you finally won the uh the uh the world championship on 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 the uh on the uh the phantom sled that's the first the first year you won it correct first and only yeah. year you won it yeah yeah one time yeah <laughs> i wish they could add a bunch of them but all those times you qualified probably, you, you finally won it yeah they uh Oh, I'm trying to think of how to start the, the culmination of, of 84. You know, I had used this sled pretty much the way that it was from Brad, um, 82, 3, and, and uh, just always struggling with this power, you know, Suzuki power. I think my best Suzuki motor up to that point was about 96 horse, maybe, maybe 94 or 5 horse. I can't remember exactly, but... Uh, had no chance to really develop it. Uh, an untold story that, uh, and I'll only dwell on it for a little bit, was um, Ted Nielsen, uh, you know, down in, uh, in Illinois, my Nielsen Enterprise. He was a, you know, he 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 wanted to win racing and he wanted to win the world championship in the worst way. Yeah. And the year before that, we he had made a deal with Ed Summerall from Polaris. I don't know exactly what it was, and Ted to this day can't remember exactly how he got it, but he made a deal with Polaris that if he bought something from them, that uh, we would get dyno time with uh, Jerry Shank would run the engine up at Polaris, and uh, Ruglin and and uh, Jimmy Hadlin and whatever would throw in uh, a day's worth of work on the dyno trying to make my Suzuki engine more powerful. Wow. So... We took the motor, and very few people even know this, but we took the, well, actually took the whole sled up there in the end, but we took the motor out and sent it to Polaris, and uh, they built a set of RXL pipes to fit on it, and they ran the engine on the dyno a lot longer than just a day. I think they probably spent a few different days on it. I still have the dyno sheet from the Polaris dyno, and and uh, and then he said, well, bring the sled up, and you can uh, use our, we, we called it, uh, what was it? I don't remember what the, 
the uh, the sewage ponds that are up there. Friends, do you do they ever the lagoons? The lagoons. There yeah. you go. So bring your sled up, and we'll put the motor back in it, and you can go out on the lagoon and and test it. And at that time, they had this thing called real time analyzer. You could it would uh, record the RPMs of the engine by sound, and then replay it and. Anyhow, so there I was with my my phantom sled sitting in Polaris R&D, uh, Ruglin and Eastman and, and uh, Headland and Harry Shank, and, and they had just worked on my engine. Whatever would have thought, Articat was out of business, of course. Um, that, uh, and I brought the sled in there and put the engine back into it, and out to the lagoon I went. And so it was kind of a... Of a deja vu, uh, I, 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 the weirdest feeling I ever would have had to be in the factory Rosso racing division with my Arctic Cat, Snow Pro, Quasi, and uh, anyhow, uh, that, I just thought I thought I'd throw that to you that that was a kind of an unwritten thing that never that no not very few people ever even knew happened. Yeah, but, that's, that's a really um, cool story. And you you, do, you dominated um, the year that year. Well, no, no, that was an '83. So, uh, and that engine was good, but not still not strong enough. I and and then, and then the next year, the first sort of beginning of '84, is when the Chester Duval, he was the the race team manager for to do. He wanted us on twin trackers in the worst way. Yeah. And uh, you know, Teddy, you got to get one of these. You got Jimmy, you got to get all the you know. So. Anyhow, uh, um, looking at the big picture of it all, I said, Ted, why don't you buy get buy the twin tracker from him and tell me you want an extra engine and all of this stuff with it, a, a regular Rotax racing engine out of the factory. And Chester, you know, yeah, well, absolutely. So Ted bought and paid for the whole thing, including this extra engine. So it came with a dyno sheet from from uh, from Valcourt and. Barbs, literally, this engine was dripping water from in the crate that it when it came with all of this stuff. So I had it in plan, and my plan was to put that Rotax engine in my Phantom sled. So that summer, I built a whole new chassis. I took all the suspension parts off of the original uh, um, uh, Scorpion and made a new bulkhead tunnel and pieces and put this all in there and fitted this Rotax into the Arctic chassis. And that was what became the the '84 Phantom sled. Yeah. Chester, of course, was was livid when he first saw the machine, and and I had to, to evade questions from um, from Brad and from Jock and and Mal Scarpic, and you know, well, you know, what are you doing, Bucky? Because now they're thinking I'm going to be part of this uh, part of the Ski Doo crew because we've got this twin tractor coming. Well, Ted and I, he painted the machine. It was identical to the to the twin for the single tracker that I had, and uh, I worked on it about 30% of the time in the race shop. It sat right next to my Phantom, and so when I was in the waiting for machine parts or whatever for the Phantom sled, I'd go back onto the twin track. Long story, it was a it needed a lot of work. Those early twin trackers were the machining and and the tolerancing the way they did it was not not nearly as good as it needed to be, which is why they broke, and which is why Brad broke his arm, and the dislocate, or the, uh, the uh, tracks, uh, um, they throw the tracks. Uh, derailing. Yeah. Derailing, that's the word. And they were derailing all the time, so that was the last thing that I wanted to have happen, so I was trying to fix all these problems. Well, 
came down to the end of it all, I got to the first test to where I could run the sled out, and uh, I didn't even drive the twin tractor. I, I got off of the Phantom, did a little clutching with this new Rotax engine in there, and, and I said, Ted, this is this is a rocket. I, you know, this is all I've ever waited for. I finally got a 100-horse engine, which is the same as all the rest of them, and uh, I, 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 I want to go this route, and we'll see what happens at the first races. And, and as the season started out, I won nine out of 11 features in the Derby and, uh, you know, the long story of building the, the championship sled up to 25 laps. But, um, yeah, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a year that I had waited for forever and I finally had all of the package together, very much like what Franz is talking about when he had his 79 sled. He had, he had everything he needed and, and just needed a couple of breaks and, and, but uh, you drove yours. I mean, you drove it. I didn't drive mine. Yeah. I had operator well, error. Oh, well, I guess, you know, friends, we've all had those races. And, and uh, you know, I wish I could redo a bunch of them, too. But it, it worked out that, that day. And, and, and it was cold. And the, the, the Derby in, in 84 was, you know, 20-some below zero. And so, so, you know. Jim, on that 84, did you run uh Comet clutch, or did you run a Polaris clutch, or what did you run for a clutch? Well, you know, it was a, it was an Articat clutch. It had a Polaris fighter in it. It was a, it was as close to a Polaris RXL clutch franny, but it had a billet cover. It was a, a Articat actually made that at the end, uh, um, uh, you know, so that if you didn't have Polaris on it, you couldn't tell by looking at it. it right. Like okay. It. All right. But yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I put a water-cooled brake on it because I knew we were going 25 laps, so I took a uh, Polaris, uh, 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 not RXL, what did they call them? Indy. Uh, PXL? Indy. Yeah, Polaris PXL or whatever it was. They had a water-cooled uh, extrusion, and I put that on my uh, Phantom sled uh, for knowing that we were going to 25 laps. I put handlebar warmers on it. Uh, I made the uh, the gas tank, uh, I made the, enough Luber, I had to make that tank bigger for for 25 laps. So I looked at this sled as a, um, you know, that's it had to go that long. That, you know, that's the, that was what it was all about. And I I had had years where my brakes had gotten shady uh, for one reason or another, depending on how well the sled would handle, and and I didn't want to lose brakes. So I, I thought I would go that route. And as it was, I I didn't. They worked just fine. So. So Jim, when 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 you win the world championship, I mean. I mean that's as good as it gets, I guess, in, in snowmobile racing, uh, um, especially in those days. Like, what what kind of money did you win, and and what kind of endorsements, or or was there anything much like that in those days, really? Yeah, well, I mean, we, I had sponsorship. I, you know, Woody sponsored me, and and Jim Musselman. I've been, you know, with him from years with Articat, and even before, back in our in our early leaf spring days. But uh, I don't remember what my deal was with with Woody's. If it was, it was at least five grand, you know, as a as a as a sponsoring deal, and then all of the product you could use, you know, studs and carbides and whatnot. Um, I think to win the race was fourteen thousand. Um, you know, you got so much for running heats and semis, and I, I don't remember the whole thing. But it seems to me it was about fourteen fifteen grand that I actually won in money. Um, you know, to to win, and you know, to you know, Skidoo Factory was still there. Jacques and uh, and um, Gary Vassar, uh Jacques actually broke, and uh, I don't know, I don't think he made it to the semifinal round. Franny qualified number 
his showroom. Oh, nice. It's been there for, for many years. I brought it back to the 50th anniversary, uh, when was that, 2010 or 13, I don't remember, but and uh, literally lapped it at Eagle. You know, I sharpened, I had the original carbides that I won the Derby with in 84, sharpened them up, put them back on the sled. That sled was uh, jetted and as race-ready as, uh, as it could ever been. Uh, if they would have closed the gates on the on the backside of that straightaway and got all the people off of there, I was full well ramped up to go <laughs> as fast as I could go on it. I, 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 I was just, it felt so good to be back on that machine again, and, and it was just like I had never left it. Yeah. Wow. All right, so where, where do you want to go from here now? Um, 85, um, what do, what, what's got, I think things are, are, are changing now. I mean, a lot of the manufacturers are getting out. Uh, it's becoming kind of a, a hybrid class now. Um, what do you two well, do? I was, uh, was, uh, was looking at the uh, the book that Ramstead wrote on Eagle River. and, and um, uh, Gingras won it. Yeah, Gingras yep. won it with the first rave motor, right? Yep, he's the only one that had the rave motor out there. Really? Did you know that there was something real special underneath that sled, like as far as the whole shots and that go? We did, or I did. You yep. did? You I did know it. about it, yep. Yeah, okay. The, the, probably the biggest thing, and maybe maybe Franz didn't even realize it, but the uh, man that developed that whole Rotax engine, Johann Holstrotter, he is the he is the doctor of of engine engineering and worked uh, for uh, Rotax uh, as their chief engine man. He developed the Rotax rotary valve motor. Okay. And Johann Johann was there. I I remember distinctly. See, I knew who he was. From back when I was racing for Articat, because uh, you know we just you know you, I guess you meet different people that maybe Franny hadn't, but uh, Johan was right in this. He he would not look down the spark plug hole for the wash of the engine. The head had to come off, yeah. and uh, you know so while Gingras was running this whole thing, and you could see these little uh, vacuum uh, chambers on the exhaust ports, was like what the hell is all that? You know, and the motorcycle industry had actually had it for quite a while, but nonetheless, uh, uh, Johan had his head over this engine, and that was his baby. He came from Austria specifically to make this motor uh, run and and obviously win. And it, it, I think, you know, Michelle drove a good race, and I think that the engine was an important part, but I know I made some significant mistakes. On I should have just took the sled the way that I had it from the year before, but I changed other things like a like a dumb racer would do, you know. And, and <laughs> thought it I made it worse and better, and and uh, probably wasn't as good of a for the returning champion to come back. And I think I I, I don't know if I finished third or fifth or whatever, but it was uh, I I had no I had no dominance whatsoever. But the whole story was all about Zingris and this new rave engine, and yeah. but. Uh, Franz, it says in the uh, in the in that book that uh, CJ wrote that you had the uh, you had the pole in '85. Yeah, I had set the fastest lap time with that '81, and like I said earlier, I had to make a decision: do I want to take an '81 sled or do I want to take a new '85 twin tracker and run? And I I'm a single track guy, kind of like Jim said when he got on that twin tracker. I'm kind of a single tracker, and and. Uh, so I chose the single tracker, and it, you know, it it wore out, and that's one of the things nowadays. At, you go to the races nowadays, compared to when we raced, Jim and I did. They used to use an awful lot of sawdust at Eagle River, and you tell the racers now that we raced on, and literally there was like 
It was like almost driving on a sheet of plywood in the corners. They had that much sawdust. Wow. Yeah, and, and you had to be kind of careful because you could scrub carbides off real fast. On remember that, Jim? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and nowadays they don't have any sawdust in the tracks at all. And and you tell it to the racers now, you know, about scrubbing off. And obviously that's what we had to be very careful of on our single trackers was, you know, scrubbing off the carbides or scrubbing off the studs where the twin trackers, they could outhandle us. Even though we had a lot more speed than they did down the straightaways, they could, even when their carbides were scrubbed, by disengaging that inside track, they could still get them around the corner pretty quick. Yeah. The, the, the thing he's talking about here, Gordon, how that, you know, and, and to just use the word scrub the carbide. If you, you sharpen these carbides up to the absolute razor sharp edge, they're as sharp as they can possibly be at the angle. I think we were at 60 degrees or whatever the, yeah. the minimum. You was. shave your fingernails. Yeah, absolutely sharp, sharp. If you took that, you could drive straight ahead with it all day long as long as you didn't run in any dirt. But if that thing so much is push the front end to where you scruff the carbide sideways and you wipe that edge, uh, and, and it didn't take much. I mean, if you just push that front end for a foot or two uh, sideways across that edge, you'd wipe that little edge off, and that sharp, sharp edge would be gone. And once it started, then, of course, the front end would push a little bit more and a little bit more, and you'd round that off to where you wouldn't have you, you know, you couldn't hear it at all. But that's that's how simple that scrubbing uh, word that uh, that Franny's using would happen. You could literally do it. And what you surely didn't want to do is to do it in the in the first lap. Yeah. If you were going to make a mistake, you better make it at the end and not in the beginning, because otherwise you're going to live with it. And uh, so anyway, I decided to throw that out there. That yeah, uh, really, that's, that's it's a nice term point. widely used, but it. Uh, it is a marked difference in the ability of that front end to hold and, and stick and be able to turn down and and uh, dr- especially drive off the corner. You you could get in with the brake and do a lot of things, but when you came back under power and you needed that front end to steer so that you could drive off without running into the wall, without pushing, uh, that's what you could really show. Yeah, perfect. Okay, uh, where are we, 80, 85? 85, yeah, 86, yeah. the last year you guys uh, yeah. ran at Eagle. What was it? Uh, I guess you didn't know it was going to be your last year. That was my last year was 85, so I'm done now. <laughs> 85, you were done? Yeah. 85 was done. Yeah. You didn't even, you packed it in from racing yeah. then, friend? No, then actually Dale Loritz called me up, and oh. he bought our twin tracker, and he bought one single tracker from me. And then I kept one single tracker, that I freshened up, and it's in the in the Hall of Fame now. And, I mean, the sled is, like Jim said, when I freshened the motor, I had parts left over, and I rebuilt everything. You literally, you know, and I, I fogged down the motor good and oiled it up good so it would last. You literally it could dump gas in it and fire that thing up and take it out on the track and, and run it and have pretty good success because it's, it's race ready, sitting in the museum. Yeah, nice. Oh. And Lawrence, like I said, Lawrence took my <coughs> one single tracker and then my twin tracker, and I don't know what year he won the world championships on a twin tracker, but he's that's where my sleds went to after I was done with them. Mm. Okay. And Jim, what were you doing now? Uh, you know, I came back to run '86. I, I think I think Ted and I maybe we only ran a couple races. I, it seems to me 
that uh, weather or or something else was a factor. I don't think there was as many races in '86. Maybe that's just my my mind, but uh, that's the year Chuck Becker won. Yeah, we didn't we didn't go uh, we didn't go to as many races then, and and I think I you know just uh, looking at it all, I, the 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 pizzazz was gone. I had I won the championship, and you know the the big deal to go on uh, um, was you know it just wasn't that burning desire to go anymore. I think I was getting ready to start my business. You know what? I, I, I qualify, but I don't remember what I finished. What some people maybe don't realize, uh, Jim does, but when we race, we give it 110% from beginning till end. And like anything, after a while, you started to kind of get burned out because you were gone every weekend and usually maybe a couple days during the week. And if you were staying someplace to build your sleds, I mean, you just. You lived and you lived and breathed snowmobiles and snowmobile racing, and you just kind of got burned out. And there was a, there was a ton of, of work place? to do on those sleds during the week. Well, yeah. you know, nobody likes to lose, and yeah. and you wanted everything as good as possible, correct? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I think that sums it up, Franny. I think at that point, I don't know how old we were, you know, but uh, I. I just happened as much of it as I as I wanted. I, I I didn't you know didn't care anymore. Didn't have that crazy desire and you know maybe things at that point. I, the twin track was was evolved to where I wasn't going to be able to run an Arctic anymore. And and I think I again I was probably more of a factory you know loyal guy to Cat. And I didn't want to drive one. I never did drive one. And and uh, I'm pretty proud to myself to say that I didn't have to. I. I got my job done with with the sled that I needed to, and so I, you know, I think I was just kind of winding down. Well, there was no interest from you guys to jump into the Formula Three class. Like that's when we started seeing Brian Sturgeon on the Wildcats and and uh, and Tim Bender on the, uh, you know, the B Maxes and things. That 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 didn't uh, that didn't uh, entice you at all, eh? No, not me. Well, for we when, when I quit racing. I quit. I, I mean, I quit cold turkey. I didn't go to any races. I didn't read any snowmobile magazines. Oh, really? I didn't even know who was racing because it was just hard. And even now, the last probably four or five, three, four or five years, I've been going to some of the races like Alexandria and Ironwood and stuff. And yeah, I'm way too old to do it. But you know, I, I mean, to this day, I'd love to get on there and squeeze that throttle. I mean, I, I, I couldn't do it, but I would love to do it. So that was one way for me when I quit was not being involved because of the fact I, you know, the the brain says you can, but the body says you can't. Right. Yeah, I have to agree with you 100%, Franz. I, you have to. Uh, I, I mean, what do you guys think when you see Jacques Villeneuve out there, 60 years old? I mean, he's in his late 50s, and he was still super competitive, you know? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've read lots of articles when he was in the hospital and yeah, oh, no, I know. And, he paid the price. That's, I'm, I'm sure every morning when he wakes up, it's. <laughs> you know, I had, you know, I had a family. Uh, you know, not not during that time. I wasn't married when I was snow pro racing, but 
uh, you know, to continue on and do it with the responsibilities that I had afterwards in life. And there's no way that I, you know, how could Jocko walk away and, and end up in the hospital and, and, you know, not I don't know how what kind of an income source he would have, but you're the breadwinner and, and now you can't go to work and you're you're mending, you know, fractured ribs and broken legs and, and dislocated this. I mean, I'm not talking about down for the count because you got the flu. We're talking about hurt. Yeah. And or next to death, and I, yeah. I actually thought it was kind of foolish to be honest with you. I, I know that my mind exactly the way of Francis that I, I feel like I could have done the same thing, but, but I really had to say, you know what, is I, I don't, I can't. I, you know, uh, uh, well, too many, too many old race drivers that you know want to go back and say they could do it all over. You know, I could still do it today, but. But the reality is, is that you know you, there comes a time when that switch flips inside of you and says it's it's time, and, and I think Grant did it pretty close. You know, I, I mean, I feel that that I quit at the right time. I was at the top of my game, and I had never gotten hurt, yeah. and I had never, and you know, I have never rode in an ambulance, and I've seen lots of people get killed, and I've seen lots of people get busted up. And for me to keep to kept racing later and later, when when I felt you know can't do this anymore, it's it's uh, taking other people's lives into jeopardy. Because if I if I crash and wipe out somebody else, yeah, I wipe out myself. But if I took somebody else out because of something I did, that would be hard to live with. You know. So I mean, we you know we had bumps and you know like Jim said he hit me or whatever i mean it was all just in racing but it was in good clean racing and and nobody got hurt you know in our real close little group i mean there was people that got killed yeah but i i feel i was fortunate to quit when i did because i i never got hurt and i learned so much about life through snowmobile racing that you know word can't really can't really say what all the stuff that I learned. I mean, I learned a lot of things about life. I mean, you you got to be ready. There with snowmobile racing, there was no second chances. You had to have your stuff top notched, or the other guy was gonna he would beat you. And I've carried that on through my life to this day. That I mean, we farm now, and and when it's time to go in the field, my stuff is absolutely tip top shape. It's ready to go. I mean, we don't bat an eye and I and I learned that through snowmobile racing because you didn't there was no second chances when that flag went down you had to be out there yeah hard hard work ethic sure you know you talked about formula three and 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 I'm going to go back a little bit into into some of the you know stuff that France talked about we've we've watched a few guys you know die and and let alone you know get hauled away The, the biggest reason that the engines of the 440 size and SoPro stopped was because of the bunkies and the and the uh, Sammy Sessions and and Larry Jim Adema and Adema, you know, we don't we this is too fast. We 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 took the 440s out of the picture simply because they were too fast. Nothing to do with motors or availability or anything else at that time. So then we go down to 340 and we run that and Formula and Twin Track and all that, and then they decide. That they forget about all of the the danger of having these super fast, and they were gonna no, we're gonna go to the 600 and 
and uh, outlaw this and that and vendors with 750 uh, you know it was like you know are you guys crazy we did this for a reason we want we, we slowed this whole thing down so that the people wouldn't gonna get killed and hurt and whatnot so I was a, a pretty much against the whole idea in the speed side of it and seeing it and hearing it absolutely it was wonderful but in the reality side of it um, I was really hoping that no one was well there was a few guys that did get killed and but uh, anyhow, that, that's my two cents of I don't know that it needed to go that route. I understand it in the marketing side of using sleds that were base production and on and on that way. But uh, when they started putting the big motors back in there, well into the 130, 40, 50 horse engines available, that, 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 was, that was pretty nuts. I, yeah. I'm glad that they didn't have to drive it. Jim, I, I agree with you 110% on that. I, I myself was against that. I thought, this is crazy. You know, and like I talked about when I had that 440 Rotex in that Polaris, that thing was so rocket fast down the straightaways that you literally couldn't think what your next move was going to be coming into the corners. And then I think about these 600s and 700s that they're putting out there. Man, I mean, it just... I, I'm really surprised more people didn't get killed in, on the on the muscle sleds that they call them. Yeah. I think those ones that Jocko crashed. I think they were 600. Uh, I, I I don't. I, it seems to me I remember reading he was in in a you know in, in a in a one of those mod uh, big big engine uh, classes, and it was you know I know the sled was going well over 100 miles an hour. So anyhow, you know that's another story. We we. Uh, we were friends, and I uh, we got out at the right time, and I and I think we both agree that it didn't necessarily need to go into uh, in a higher power level, but that was done for a lot of other reasons, and, and uh, that's the way it is. Yeah. Are you fellows today? Do you do you trail ride? Are you active snowmobilers, or no? Or do you uh, go down south for this winter now? <laughs> I ride my motorcycle and go south and ride my motorcycle in Texas, and it's it's warmer. How about you, Jim? Yeah, and, and I I pretty much despise winter now, too. And everybody, you know, they all, geez, Jim, you rake no bills forever. You know, I said, you know what? I, 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 at that time, it didn't really matter to me. I, you know, I didn't like 25 below zero racing, but uh, now I absolutely hate it. And, and I go to Mexico. I sometimes go down there for a few weeks. And um, I have a couple of trail machines. I actually got into it more in the last 10 years uh, um, with my son, and we go primarily to do the Ride with the Champs, the, uh, the Hall of Fame over in St. Germain. The little story back in 1984 happened to be the year that I won the Derby, C.J. Ramstead, um, Bosaki, uh, Larry Bosaki, and, and uh, uh, Lauren Anderson concocted this idea to start a Hall of Fame and a, and a museum that would carry on the the whole, uh, I don't know, legacy for a better word, uh, of, of snowmobiling, racing, originality, suits, uh, innovators, all kinds of stuff. And I would assume that you guys have been to that Hall of Fame. I know Franny has. It is an incredible place, but the idea started 35 years ago, and and uh, they started with this idea of uh, making a... a uh, uh, a fundraiser by having past champions and celebrities, and I think Fran, I know Fran is right, wrote in it as well. Yep. And they, we would come uh, and gather there in the middle of February, and people literally would come from all over the country. 
Nova Scotia, you know, Texas, all over to come and ride and and BS with the champ. And and I think you might be doing it again this year. Absolutely. I built a special sled a couple years ago. I took an LT gray and and put a 900 Thundercat motor in it, muffler, completely stock legal enough to, and and brought that. And and now last year I had a, a, a ZR with a 900 Thundercat in it, and now I'm building another hot rod. But but anyhow, I go there, and and people enjoy talking. They want to talk about their sled. They want to talk about my past. I saw you here, da da da, an Arctic cat, and I buy this, and and uh, there's a lot of camaraderie that goes with the whole thing. And part of what I feel I'm giving back to the sport that that made me what I am and in my own little has been world now that, uh, that when you're in those kinds of, uh, uh, environments, I, you, you're a big deal and, and they feel uh, cool about being around the big deal guys. And, and, uh, there's hundreds of people, literally hundreds of them that come every year for it all. And they induct some new people. And, and yes, I was inducted into hall of fame and it was, it's a, it's a privilege to be with a whole bunch of other good guys, whether they be racers or, or manufacturers or innovators or, or whatever. And, and so I, I kind of, that's my form of snowmobiling now. I don't, I don't have a modern day sled. I don't go riding hundreds of miles. I haven't for, for many, many years, since probably 2000. So, um, but I do do that for, for myself and obviously for my son, but um, for the industry and, and the snowmobile world. So. Sure. Excellent. Franz, what are you what are you doing these days? Well, in the in the winter time, like last year, I went up. To, uh, Ironwood invited me to come up there. It was I want to say it was 40 years ago since Jim Adama got killed up there. And after he got killed, his wife uh, come up with a, a traveling trophy that was like presented every year to the High Point Independent Driver. And she presented that to me when I won the World Series out in, in Weedsport, New York, year after. Well, they wanted me to come up there because they were going to do another Jim Edema tro- traveling trophy. And Patty had not been back to Ironwood since Jim had gotten killed up there 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I went up there and for the two days of racing up there at, at Ironwood and Seen a lot of people, a lot of the old people that we raced against. Um, uh, one of the guys that Greg Spaulding, he's kind of into that, uh, helping uh, with some of the some of the old IFS sleds and stuff. And and it was just fun to go up there. And and then uh, I sometimes go to Waconia. They invited me to come down to Waconia and and just talk to people and do some autograph signing and stuff. But what the general public has got to realize is guys like Jim and I, we're just ordinary people. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we raced and we, but at the time when we raced, we didn't think it was that big of a deal. But now you look back at it 40 years ago, and I guess it was a kind of a big deal. So, <laughs> well, you look you at know, the crowd, but, you look at the crowds uh, they had back then, they're, right. they're huge crowds. <laughs> but Jim and I both, We've got time. We'll, you know, if we got time, we'll talk to anybody. Yeah. I mean, it just we're just normal people. I mean, that's that's the the you know, and a lot of people think we're celebrities. Well, we're not celebrities. We're just 
the average person. And that's what I do in the wintertime. We do, uh, um, we're into some tractor pulling now, some pretty high horsepower tractor oh, yeah. pulling. And we usually go to one indoor pull down in Illinois every winter, and we do that. And, and then I, in the summer, I just farm. And, uh, you know, I like tractor pulling because it's kind of warm, and I like <laughs> horsepower, and, and we can make horsepower, and we can make a lot of smoke. Yeah. And 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 it, we get kind of the same smell out of them engines that we used to get out of our snowmobile engines. So it's you know it's kind of a something a neat way to go. I can't snowmobile race anymore, but I still can tractor pull. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Great. Well, this has been a this has been a, a heck of a conversation with you two. I, it's been awesome, awesome listening to you two. Uh, Jim, so what, you're you're not 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 so much involved in, in snowmobiles now. You're just uh, just do the, the the one ride and. Kind of look look on look yep. on the outside. That's the that's the pretty much the extent of that. I I might throw a little part of where I thought my uh, my secondary uh, um, snowmobiling life was going to go was blacktop drag racing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, I have to take you back a few years into the oh I think it was like ninety four. Um, uh, kind of a long story. I'll try to condense it a little bit, but. Uh, um, Joey Hallstrom, uh, who at that time was the race manager, coordinator for, for Team Arctic, uh, and uh, a guy by the name of Dick Rowe, he was the general manager of Brainerd International Raceway, which is the drag strip up in Brainerd. Yeah. It's an, on the NHRA national tour and, and has been for many years. I went there and watched for years. Um, Joey and and uh, Dick Rowe had conversation, and Joey said, "Why don't I want to bring you a couple of Jag fan-cooled 440 snowmobiles that we have put little wheels in the skis? The the skis were developed for the for the endurance uh, uh, testing crew at Articat on that same blacktop that I drag raced on. They ended up making an entire course that was probably I don't know a mile long with all kinds of different." Uh, uh, you know, terrain in it. And so they made these skis with these idler wheels in there so that they could drive the snowmobile in there on their, uh, on the blacktop. Well, Joey thought that if you brought those Jags, that the NHRA crew could use those sleds for their chase sleds. They could go up and down the drag strip, fix their timers, blah, 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 instead of using a four-wheeler, because Articat at that time didn't make one. So he brought a couple of them, and Dick Rowe, he said, this is great. You just throw your leg over the side of it, go, stop, whatever, turns around on a dime. These are wonderful. He said, Joey, did you ever think about running them down the drag strip? And, of course, Joey, being the, 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 the marketing man that he was for Arctic, he goes, well, well no, but I sure could. He said, uh, we, could, we, got a, we got an 800 uh, snowmobile. We'll put some on there and... And bring it down and make an exhibition run, Dick said. Well, I tell you what, if you want, I'll let you run that sled during the NHRA Nationals. And you can do a little showcase with it at the same time. So Joey calls up me and he said, hey, Jim, he said, would you be willing to drive this sled down the drag strip? I said, well, you know, how much do you want me to pay you? Of course I would. So he got Al Kimpa, who was the race team director for, for a competition for Arctic, to build up this sled. Uh, 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 Shimpa took the sled out onto the blacktop and literally fried all of the lugs off of the track until just before it turned to the, 
to the fiberglass rods inside of it, but he literally took a, a regular rubber track, cut the down to nothing. And he went down and he did a little work on the sled and, and clutched it up a little and jetted her down and got it all to work and said, Jim, I'll meet you up at Brainerd and, uh, you know, whatever this was uh, the, the week before the, the race. So up we come. Well, NHRA, you know, that was at that time, and then they still are a big deal. Uh, Buster Couch, the official starter, uh, 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 I'm trying to think of the director of competition and all that. Here comes the sled, and all right, you know, pull up to the line, and it was, you know, no, no people were there yet. And down I go and blister, I don't know, 10, 10 something, 114 miles an hour. Well, these guys were, holy shit. You know, this thing goes like a rocket, and, it, and it's, it's a snowmobile. Well, these guys were all from Southern Cal. You know, they, they'd heard about snowmobiles. They never saw one. They never ran one. And mm-hmm. They knew what it took for a car to go 10 seconds. You know, that you're talking a super stock category with uh, 500 horsepower to, to drag down there. So, anyhow, so Rose said, you come, and we're going to run this during the, um, the professional categories, which is, uh, pro stock, top fuel, funny car, pro stock bike, and then you're going to come out. So all the people will be in the stands when you come to make this run. Great. This, this, is, this, is, this is working right exactly the way you wanted it. So all that come, put my leathers on, and, and uh, you know, go out. And, and I think the first run was right after pro stock cars. And I remember Bob Glidden, and uh, if you guys don't know him from pro stock Ford. Oh, yeah, was, yeah. He was a you know, hell of a competitor. Um, he was standing in front of me waiting for his turn to come up into it all. And he, you know, he was from Indiana. And, and uh, well, you know, and I can't talk with that little, that Indiana Southern drawl. But, you know, what the hell? And, and uh, so anyhow, what I found was the difference of traction when after these dragsters go down and lay all this hot rubber down from that, well, I, you could hardly walk. I mean, your, your shoes were stuck to the drag strip, and I'm thinking, I know this thing's going to hit. When, I don't remember how much faster, but it was a lot faster and a lot quicker uh, when Long. I could run on top of the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the molten rubber from these dragsters. Yeah. So I'm right down in the, with all of this hoopla going on. I mean, I've watched the race for years, but now I'm literally in the staging lanes with, with uh, John Force on, on one side of me, and so it was a it was an incredible um, first beginning. I, as far as I know, I was the first guy that ever drove a snowmobile down the uh, uh, an NHRA race, let alone any drag strip. I'm not saying that somebody might have tried it, but I don't know that who it would have been that would have put the, took the time to put the wheels in their skis and and go drive it. So. Anyhow, uh, the, the media found out about it, and the snowmobile world, and Skidoo found out about it, and you know, I, well, geez, you know, how can we get in? We want to race, you know. Let's, let's do <laughs> That's this. right, yeah. And, and the whole thing kind of kicked off, like, well, okay, well, we'll do two fleets, two Yamis, two Skidoo's, two Flaris, two Arctic. Flaris was still not in a position where they were going to field a factory team, but Skidoo took uh, Dave Strickstead and Guy Parquette, Yamaha got the two Hulk brothers, Jerry and, and uh, Pat Hulk, and um, I'm missing. Right. Artica chose myself and uh, Brian Sturgeon. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the players guys, Jerry Solom and, and somebody else, but they were independent. They didn't get the, they didn't get the factory ride. 
So we did a couple of, you know, long story. I could go on and on. That's the bad part. You asked me a question. <laughs> I can talk your ear off. But, uh, but I think it's an a, 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 a interesting part of my life and uh, the fact of where I thought that my next, uh, I was more than content to be in the summer and not in the winter and, and uh, go on and on. And I, so I thought that maybe all these manufacturers would get together and go to NHRA and say, hey, we'll give you guys a million bucks to get in the show. We want, or whatever, a million each, yeah. I, whatever it costs. I could not see why they wouldn't have seen the, the tremendous ability to go on national television and uh, and promote this stuff, at least in the Midwest. And, um, but they didn't. Yeah. And they, they, they didn't want to put the money. They either didn't see the division. I think money was tough back then. Maybe the, maybe the sport was just the companies weren't strong enough, and, and I wanted to do it on professional level, pro stock, 150 miles an hour, eight seconds. I, I saw this whole, like, you know, this was, but it never happened. Yeah. So um, I, that was the, the beginning and the end of it all for me. It went for a few years, but uh, um, I, my best speed, I think, was about 135 miles an hour and uh, 920, something like that. So, uh, you know, 1,000 cc. 200 plus horse engine. It was, it was that was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, you must be must be pretty pleased now. I mean, it's it's still pretty popular to today. The uh, the asphalt drags, and you got some pretty exotic sleds uh, running the strip now. Um, hand built yeah. hand built racers, uh, you know, still still dragging these sleds. It's still still pretty popular. I do, yeah. I do. I you know, I guess I feel like I started that wheel, you know, and indirectly because of Joey and Arctic, but. Uh, um, you know that it, it, it carried on exactly where I thought it was going to go, and, and wished it. To, you know, unfortunately, I don't think they're getting the billing out of it that they they should. But without the factories behind it, it's, yeah. it's hard to drive that forward. But anyhow, that was a big part of uh, of the next wave of my life that that I wanted, I did do, and and uh, would have liked to have gone further with it. But uh, that was the last of my yeah. race. Perfect. Right, okay, let's, let's wrap this up. Uh, uh, Hal, you got any final questions? Uh, no, I, I, no, I mean, it's, no, I don't, you guys. Wake, wake up, pal, wake up, you've been speaking to me the whole thing. Well, where are you, Jim, are you back in 1981 or what? <laughs> I guess my, my just last question for, uh, for both of you is, um, I asked this of all the, uh, everybody we've interviewed, I mean, uh, you know, when you got, and, and I know you're both on the line here, but just to speak the truth, when you guys were racing, you know, and you pulled up to the line and you looked to your left and you looked to your right, who was the guy that you were, you know, when, when you seen him pull up that you were gunning for, that that's the guy I got to beat? Was there anybody in particular that you, you know, I mean, as your career evolved, obviously when you were rookies, I mean, it was the Bob Elsners and, the, you know, uh, and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Jerry Bunkies and these types of guys that you grew up, the Larry Coltons. But then as you guys became the senior guys, was there was there anybody, you know, that you really were always looking over your shoulder at and, you know, maybe taking a walk through the pits, seeing what was going on? Um, you know, somebody that you really respected. I'll, I'll let you go I first, friends. <laughs> I knew you'd do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah, I have a different way to answer it, but nonetheless, so, yeah. Well... Um, you know, I respected every one of the guys that was that was in uh, next to me on the line. I'd kind of look to see who I was racing against because we'd raced against 
most of these guys before, and you kind of get to know the habit of how people drive when you race against them every single week. Um, you know if you want to try to, you know, you, you don't want to put yourself in a position where, where you can get yourself into trouble with certain people. Um, I respected every single one of them because every single one of them was, was always pretty darn fast. Um, but to be, to say that, was there anybody that I was really gunning for? I guess uh, probably I'd have to say every single one of them. I wanted to beat every one of them, and I give it my all. But did any of them, uh, I don't know what, what word to use to basically scare me? No, nobody really scared me. But I, I, I mean, I had respect for every single one of them, but at the same time, I didn't. Didn't think that you know. I went into the race expecting that I'm going to give them give them the best shot I can, and I'm going to try to beat them. And that's that's kind of my my way. I I can't really say I uh, I looked up to everybody. I looked up to everybody, but on the track I I considered them an equal. Um, the Davy Thompsons, the Larry Coltons, the Roger Skimes, and the Charlie Loftons. Them people I looked up to in the pits, but I didn't race against them guys. You know what I mean? If probably if I'd have lined up next to them guys on the on the starting line, it would have been a different story. But most all of them guys had all quit when I started racing, but they were my heroes back back in the day. But the guys that I was lined up next to, I guess I thought they were just everyday people like me, and I had just as good a chance of winning as they did. Now it's your turn, Jim. <laughs> well, if, it, and, and there's a lot to that, friends, and I mean, I think that was a great way of explaining it all in the end. Um, if I think back to some of the beginning, and, and even as it evolved, uh, you'd go to the board to see who, how the heat la uh, races were laid out, who was going to be in the heat. And, and you either knew their number or their name was going to be on there. So part of that initial feeling was, was now at least I have a benchmark. I, I want to know I got Franny in the next heat or, or, or whoever, and, and I want to I know how I compare with him. Uh, how did he come to the, off the trailer from, from wherever he was last? And, you know, he ran good, he won last week, or... Or whatever, and now I now I want I need to know I'm either going to beat him, or I'm going to know where he's strong, or or you know how well I stack up for the for the week at this particular track and day and weather and everything else. The problem there was is that you'd have heats of it all, and eventually you're going to meet with all of them in the final, and that's probably the time that I'd say that Franny would look uh, you know right left whatever I know they're all in here. If I was going to pick one guy that I probably had the most difficulty beating because I either he was performance better would be Brad Hewley. Yeah. That that man more times than not had his setup and drove a race that was the best. He he won the championship a few times. He won a lot of races many times. He drove many different sleds. Very well, very many times. I uh, he was a clean racer. He he never he never uh, he never would he, he 
outperformed you, outclutched you. He he was a he was a good good solid racer. If I was going to pick one racer that was the best oval racer of all time in my era, I would pick Brad Hewitt. The the uh, the guys that, now Bobby Elsner, you know, I mean, I, there's guys that I raced with like Francis time and time again that were strong racers that probably beat me more times than I beat them. Um, you know, guys like that. Bobby was probably the strongest junkyard dog racer. He was always there. He just, he never broke down. He, he, if he wasn't in front at the beginning, he was right on your heels and he was looking for the uh, a way to get around you high, low, whatever. And, and he was a real strong driver that way. Not, not aggressive, but strong. And, and I think that's how I would put Franny in my picture of it all, is he was a strong driver. He didn't always have a flash in the pan, but, but he was going to be there. You know, if, if, he, if he wasn't alongside you already or in front of you, he was going to get there sooner or later. You're going to have to contend with him. It's not just because you beat him off the starting line to the first corner. It ain't over yet. And, 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 and I think that that's how I looked at a lot of the guys that, they were all good. They were all good. But uh, where am I going to face them? At the beginning or at the end? Yeah. Awesome answer. It was great. Awesome. Okay. Well, that was great talking to you two guys. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, I, I, I certainly remember watching you guys. Uh, when I was traveling with my brother you know, on, the, on the circuit kind of thing, so I, I, I definitely knew well, I want to go and listen to this, these other yeah. ones. I mean, I what I heard tonight was great, but I want to hear these yeah. other guys. Well, you got to you got to hear you got to hear Villeneuve and and Yvonne de Hommel and Bob Eastman. Bob Eastman is is, is the second most popular one. Uh, but um, Brian Nelson Brian is, Nelson's is the number it's, one. Yeah, it's number one now, and that's because Arctic Insider uh, uh, published oh. that one, and, and and it just blew up uh, when they when they published it. But uh, uh, the Villeneuve one was nice because uh, he he kind of uh, throws out there that the uh, the Alouette Twin Tracker, Jules Alouette Twin Tracker, still exists in a barn, and then that kind of like blew up the internet when he when I published that. And uh, huh. so uh, yeah, it's 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 going good. They're they're, they're quite popular, and uh, everybody loves listening to you know the, the, the older stories, uh, you know, right. kind of thing. Uh, the, the old the older guys, the, the legends we call them. Uh, um, the, the young guys don't understand. Now, really, what really went went on in the '70s and '80s and '90s, and now, now, you know, this, these these podcasts kind of bring that back, and that's kind of why I uh, I, I do them just uh, for the love of it. <laughs> well, on one hand, I wish I was uh, 40 years younger, but yeah. from what we went through back then, they were the heydays of snowmobile racing. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, sure. they really were. Yeah. You know, you you look at the pictures back and look at the the. Crowd. Grandstand so full of people that it it was amazing. Yeah, and uh, and friends, uh, you might want to know. Uh, my brother has a showroom condition SSR. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Huh. He, okay. ra- he, he raced one. He raced one. He, he, yeah, he obviously raced one, uh, and then uh, sold it off after. Uh, then he went to Polaris, the Formula Three, and um, and and now uh, you know, 35 years later, he but he bought one uh, down in New York, uh, you know, in uh, showroom condition. You know, huh. and so he just kind of. All right. Well, so, thank you. I want to thank you guys uh, both for coming on and uh, and, and talking with uh, with me and Hal and uh, uh, it's it, it was great uh, listening to you guys. All right. Well, good luck. Take care, guys. Guys. Yep. Much thanks. Bye. Thanks a lot. Okay. Yeah. Good night. Bye.